This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Uncommon Energy Podcast. On this week's episode, we'll be breaking down the results of the Lugia Archaeops International Championships or LAIC, the Latin America International Championships, which took place this past weekend. We'll talk about a couple of disqualifications that happened at the event. We'll give our opinions on them, the facts, what we know, what we don't, all those things. We will, of course, have everyone's favorite segment, Guess That Flavor Text, and we'll also talk about the slew of upcoming regional championships this weekend happening around the world and talk about where we think this Silver Tempest meta is going. My name is Chip Ritchie, and I am joined, as always, by my friend Azul GG, who's coming off a pretty hot top 16 finish at LAIC, Azul Congratulations, round of applause from everyone. How's it doing, man? How, how's it feel? Uh, I mean, top 16 is all right. Not a top eight, obviously. Like, that's kind of my goal is to try and, I guess, not top eight every event. I did feel like I put myself in a fine spot to potentially get top eight. I had a couple games that, uh, if they had gone the other way from ties to wins, I probably would have been in top eight. So, no top eight this time around. Ended up playing the Lost Zone Kyogre box that Grant got top four with at the event. Um, and I think the deck was overall, like, pretty solid um i always kind of bring up like uh the spreadsheet me and my group do and lugia won the spreadsheet but we also didn't want to play lugia thinking that uh, i thought the day one meta share would have been a little bit higher it was like 25 percent. i thought it would have been like uh 30 40 percent uh but then in day two it got up to like 50 percent. that's what we didn't want we didn't want to play a ton of mirror matches so we're like we're not playing lugia let's find something else and uh, yeah, ended up going with the Lost Zone Kyogre box. We thought it was a solid deck. A lot of people want to be able to just handle the unexpectedness of all the random stuff that's in the deck um, and try to check it out as best we could for the room. And it ended up pretty well. Like, you know, like I said, I got top 16. Grant was in, in top four. So definitely overall happy with the choice, uh, I guess. So yeah, great time at the event, though. Um, overall, the stage was super sick. That was like the one thing that stood out to me immediately when I got into the venue. The venue in general was like super... It was really hot in the venue. I was sweating all day, but... It was a super sick venue. Everything that they had going on and set up in the in the venue was super sick. So that was super cool. Uh, but Chip, how did you like the event? It was your first time in Brazil, right? That's right. Yeah, it's first time I'd ever been to LAIC. First time I had ever been to Brazil. And it was a great time. Yeah, I went down there as a caster, if anyone did not catch last week's episode. And I had a blast. I totally agree about the stage. The production level was sick. Um, they keep kind of like pushing it a little bit more and more and i think that's going to continue to be a trend for the next few um seasons hopefully so i mean it, it might not be like a change that you see regional to regional but i think like yeah there's a decent chance that next season's regionals look way different than this season's regionals which like gets me fired up you know i'm super pumped <laughs> about that um just like the growth of the game and um yeah the stage was awesome and we got to see some awesome games. Uh, we did see lots of Lugia. <laughs> Obviously, you talked about how it was like 25% of the day one field. 
But everyone who we talked to, all of the like top players that we interviewed on the stage and everyone who we interviewed after they won their on-stream match, um, many of them talked about, especially later in the tournament, how like, you know, it was round 11 and they had played seven Lugia mirrors and stuff like that. <laughs> so it wasn't, while it was 25% of the day one meta, it was winning a lot. So if you were winning your yeah. rounds, you were more likely to play <laughs> Lugia, it felt like. So, I mean, I interviewed John, I think, in like round 14 or something like that, and he had played 11 Lugia mirrors. So, um, yeah, a lot of Lugia, and I don't fault you at all for going against the spreadsheet. <laughs> I imagine it probably hurt Caleb a little bit to go against the spreadsheet, but, you know, I think that that is a totally fair choice. And I really did enjoy the deck that you guys decided to play. Um, we had you on the stream, and we had Grant on twice, one in Swiss, one in top four. So got to see a little bit of Lost Box action. Some I don't think we ever saw the Kyogre come in on the stream. I watched some of y'all's games in the field, though, and saw the Kyogre once or twice. But, uh, yeah, very, very cool deck for sure. And yeah, uh, the the threat is, like, a little bit more important than actually using it. Like, yes, I, I didn't Kyogre, the fact like, that it exists, right? <laughs> yeah, the fact that Kyogre exists forces your opponent to play around the Kyogre, so they force them to play more awkwardly. And if you don't have it, you are going to lose some games without it. So definitely needs you need some kind of closure. Like, Sable Zard has Zard. Kyogre build has Kyogre. You need some kind of closer that kind of threatens your opponent for sure. Definitely. Um, I will say, you know, like I mentioned, it was my first time being in Brazil. I know zero Portuguese and I thought it would like be okay. Like, you know, of the caster of the TCG casters, um, you know, Freya grew up in Brazil, like did like early school in Brazil. She's half Brazilian. So, um, you know, she's fluent. And then Pablo also uh, lived in Brazil for like six months, I think, in the late uh, 20 or early 2010s. So he, he like is pretty fluent in Portuguese as well. So I was like, OK, yeah, we'll be fine. Uh, but the very first day we went to this mall near the hotel that had a food court and we all split up to go get lunch. And then we go sit together and I walked up and um, the girl working the register said something to me in Portuguese and I just pointed to the menu to what I wanted. I said, no Portuguese. And I pointed to what I wanted. And she asked me 20 questions <laughs> all in Portuguese. And I was like, this is going to be way harder than I thought it was, but <laughs> we made it work. I got some food. It was good. And we're good to go. So yeah, it was great. I enjoyed it. We also one night went and ate at uh, Fogo de Chao, the Brazilian steakhouse, which I've had Brazilian steakhouses in America which is always fun and a good experience for those who don't know. It's like the restaurant style where they walk around with skewers of meat and basically walk up to your table and they're like, sir, would you like this, you know, slow roasted sirloin? And you're like, yeah, absolutely. Cut me off a piece. Or would you like this bacon wrapped lamb chop? Sure. Go ahead. Put it on my plate. <laughs> and, uh, but it was that, but it actually a Brazilian steakhouse, but actually in Brazil. And it was a really cool experience and a lot of fun and way better than an American Brazilian steakhouse. So that was awesome. Yeah, definitely is a, a, a notch above for sure. So let's just jump right in to the tournament's results. And yeah, there was a lot of Lugia. And I think we all knew going in that Lugia was going to be really good. I think everyone pretty much knew it was going to dominate. And uh, even though people probably didn't want to play Lugia mirrors all day, it just didn't <laughs> stop them from playing Lugia because the deck is that good. 25% of the day one field, 
55% of the day two field, 75% of cut, and of course it was three out of the top, so six out of eight top eight spots, three out of four top four spots, and two Lugia V-Stars facing off in the finals, and Tord Reklev did eventually win with his Lugia Archeops deck, which, worthy of noting as well, this was Tord Reklev's fourth international championship win and not only is it his fourth win but it is the last unique international championships he had not <laughs> won so he has now won euic naic ocic and now laic so congratulations to tord an incredible feat that may never be accomplished azul told me that he's working on it but buddy you're, you're a little ways away <laughs> yeah, the only international championship left for tort is worlds it's still an international event so that's like the next the next one i'm not the only one though i did see stefan on twitter tweet out as well that stefan uh plans to uh try and catch up as well yeah um yeah. stefan does have two international championships but a both of them are you. yeah but both of them are north american international champions so technically as far as getting a win in each of the ic's me and stefan are on the same level right now <laughs> i think my um, favorite tweet from post event was stefan's tweet where he listed out the ic wins for each region tcg ic wins per region eu5 na4 latam4 and tord4 <laughs> which is just unbelievable unbelievable yeah. uh an incredible feat for sure Missing out on a one thing I noticed immediately in that tweet though, Stefan missed out on some great banter by putting OCIC at zero, because um, they have yet to <laughs> they have yet to win a win an IC. I mean, I would put Australians it in my like that. I mean, it was just it's just it's all fun and games. I mean, they've got uh, they've got a world championship uh, with Henry, and you know they're always showing up big uh, at every single tournament. Uh, they always show up big at the ICs. They haven't quite been able to get a dub. Um, but yeah, I definitely want to put that out there for sure. It's yeah, just, it's just a little Natalie bit of banter. on her winning in, right? Like if she went, yeah, she was yeah. in, but you could yeah, Natalie, I think, well, I don't know for sure. I think I, I remember talking to Natalie. I, I remember talking to Natalie after the fact, and I think she would have made, would have made, uh, eight seed over toward, um, if Natalie had beat me. So Natalie, I, I played against Natalie. I had 30 points. Natalie had 31. So I got the up pair. There was three people who bubbled out at 34 and Natalie could have made it a fourth person bubbling out at 34. And I think it would have, I think. Natalie would have had better resistance than towards. So um almost. Yeah. Almost uh almost managed to get a top eight there. And then yeah, would have would have taken Tord out of contention there. Would have had a tough matchup against uh, just Sander though. Another <laughs> factor into Tord's plot armor, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> like Tord is obviously, obviously, this is not taking away from Tord. He is an insanely good Pokemon TCG player. The best in the game right now, I think, unequivocally for sure. And, you know, so this does not take away from that at all, but his plot armor is unreal. <laughs> he gets yeah, in, definitely... he gets into top eight at eighth seed because two people tied the winning in and you beat Natalie. If any Wait, of those two people tie two people tied winning ends. Yes. Get to what? To get to 35? Yeah. No, oh, no, I didn't no, know no. That. To get to get to 34, to get to 34. Wait, there could have been f like six people whipping yes. at 34 points? Yes, Holy yes. Holy moly, I tried I to know tell that. you. I tried to tell you that whenever I spoke to you briefly, like, <sighs> as that round was ending, and you're like, no, no, it's not going to be that many. No, it was that and many. <laughs> I even told Tord that he I told Tord that he was trolling for ID in the last round. I didn't know it was that bad, though. I literally told him. I was like, no, you should have definitely played that out. You're trolling for a tie in there. 
Uh, he's like, no, I think my resistance is pretty good. And I was like, all right. I didn't know it was that bad. That was a bad tie. <laughs> I think the only person who should have tied there was John because John went up against Sander. Yeah. So it's like you're not going to win anyways. Just take your point. Most just take your point. The chance that you win that is so low. Yeah. Um. So I think that's the only reasonable ID was actually was actually John. I think everyone else who ID'd to get to 34 was absolutely trolling in that situation. But I mean, it, it, it can work out. You can troll and troll and have it work out for you for sure. But yeah, definitely insane. Uh, managed to squeak out a win against Sander in top eight after squeaking in at eighth seed, which is a terrible matchup for Tord, even though it is a control deck. Even though Sander was playing a control deck, control decks definitely, control decks, mill decks definitely, definitely have a worse time in top eight scenarios because of the time rules of uh, if you can get to game three as the non-mill control deck, it's decided by who's drawn the most prize cards once time ends, which usually a control deck or a mill deck takes a little bit longer to win games. So usually if the non-miller control deck can win a game, then you push it to game three, there won't be enough time for them to actually beat you through their control win condition or their mill win condition, and you'll have drawn a couple prize cards and we'll just kind of win the game, which is what happened with me against Sander at NAIC as well. Yeah. Um, but this time around, the matchup is so good for Sander you're probably just going to win game one and game two like, like absurdly 90 game. like 90 percent of the time you'll just win game one and game two it won't even ever get to game three uh, for my scenario against standard like naic it was definitely a little bit closer of a matchup so yeah gets through that and then <laughs> in the finals uh toward actually couldn't win game th game one at a certain point yeah and lucas just didn't count towards discard pile to check energy i think was the main thing and decided to scoop it's like oh you can attack with charizard next turn uh, i guess i can't win anymore i'll concede um and well, i actually Tor heard did that still I theoretically have an energy left but it was prized yeah 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 so like then you should just play off that win condition as lucas um yeah, there's Tor's extra only time in the finals there's extra time in the finals right and the lugia mirror is never going to go to the full 75 minutes like yeah pretty much ever so um yeah lucas definitely should have just passed and waited like a couple turns at least to see what tord did no reason yeah. not to he didn't he concedes when tord was going to lose and <laughs> tord wins the freaking tournament man unbelievable right <laughs> that's what that's what i always talk about too is always like the, the, what, the first thing you should always make you should always make your opponent have it even if you think they have it make them have it Especially in a situation like that, obviously, like if you're like, well, I lose this game like every time in three turns from now, that's like a reasonable time to concede. But if you look at a board set and you're like, well, I lose next turn if they have this card and they probably have this card, make them show you the card, right? Um, or even in situations where they show you the card, make them play it out, sequence out the turn correctly, even if you have enough time to force them to do that, right? So yeah, always make uh, <laughs> something to learn, take away from this. Uh, and I'm sure Lucas <laughs> in the future will make sure that their opponent has the card and not just assume uh, you probably have it here. you know 90 percent of the time you probably beat me next turn but in that situation actually i don't even think it was that great for tord so because yeah there was the one aurora energy left in the deck i think yeah, but he the, had charizard, one single energy left and it was the aurora yeah. to attack with charizard but charizard but uh lucas was at three prize cards left so charizard yes. couldn't even attack unless lucas decided to start drawing prize cards so uh yeah make sure your opponent has it and again i think lucas will uh will be doing that from here on out for sure for sure for sure but yeah insane plot armor for sure <laughs> So, all that aside, uh, let's break down these different Lugia decks. So, I, I mean, obviously the deck was dominant. It took six out of the top eight spots. But the six lists that were in the top eight were all different. No, no, you know, testing partners in top eight or anything like that. So, everyone had their own different takes on the deck. I would say they're all probably the same, like, 52 cards, 
Maybe not even that because of how different Kieran's list is with the trekking shoes, but we'll talk about all of that. Uh, starting off with Tord's, and if you are unfamiliar with Tord, his focus, especially at these big tournaments, has just pretty much always been consistency, making sure his deck is as consistent as possible, that it is going to set up its main game plan, um, usually going to be lighter on the techs unless it vastly improves a super relevant matchup, right? Which is what we see um, with the Stoutland. And like stuff like Evil Tall and Radiant Charizard, even though they are one ofs, you can't really call these cards techs in the Lugia deck, right? They are just yeah. kind of, they are part of the deck. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're kind of like the standard too. And then of course from there you see like the additions like, you know, Tord brought the Stoutland. Uh, and then we saw John and uh i forget who else brought the right brought john and pedro you know brought the right because that's like the tech that's what you could classify as like being like a tech card in the list like the standard aurora build lugia archaeops charizard yvital and that's like okay where do we go from here what else is going to be popular enough to want to include stuff like stoutland like raikou and so on so the unique things to me about towards list to talk about he played for research he played orangaroo and he played for Capture Energy. Lucas also played for Capture Energy, by the way, as well. And he played no V-Guard Energy. Yeah, so the no V-Guard is, I think, the biggest standout there. Because, like, yeah. when you go first, I guess if it, but I guess if the, the factor would be more so if you go second in the Lugia Mirror and you, like, match their Lugia with your Lugia, you get the V-Guard in there and, like, you kind of force them to have the... Uh, they can't have a Lugia response there ever. It has to be the Charizard or the Yvital. But maybe that just doesn't work out where that matters too much. Maybe it only really matters when you go first. and then you get. But then if you're going first, you get the first knockout. So then how relevant is it to have the V-Guard energy? Like I say, like the, thinking about it like right now, maybe having the V-Guard energy isn't that big of a deal. But yeah, the four captures is like super good because it gives you your pivot into your attacker, right? The capture energy searches out your attacker. So you search out your Yvital, you search out your Charizard, Stoutland, whatever, and you get to retreat off the Archaeops because that has one retreat cost and you get into your attacker. So four capture actually just seems kind of insanely good. It makes it really easy that once you're ahead, it's pretty easy to just like chain your attackers as long as they're not prized and just kind of go to the next. Yeah, we saw Lucas and Tord both rocking the, the quad capture, which yeah, that definitely seems like a very uh, powerful inclusion for sure. Yeah, I like it a lot for sure. And also... It's kind of crazy how well Tord's set up in almost all of his stream games. I think with the exception of game two of the finals, which, you know, he was going second in the Lugia Mirror, so he was automatically at a disadvantage anyway. Um, yeah. I think every time that we saw Tord go first, I would have to go back and watch to double check, but uh, it at least felt like this. It felt like every time he went first, he would get double Archaeops in the discard pile at a minimum going first, <laughs> which is massive. And that's what, you, as the Lugia mirror, when you're going first, like you're, you're going to be at an advantage, but your opponent has things they can do. And the main thing they can do is Marnie you turn one. Try to put you to a few cards, uh, especially if you don't have any Archaeops in your discard pile. If you can at least discard an Archaeops or two on turn one when you're going first, that puts you as just so much less you're going to need off of a four-card Marnie. But not only could Tord get two Archaeops in the discard pile going first, which is, like, super good already, he would also often be able to get down his Oranguru and put a good card on top of his deck so that even if he got Marnied, he was going to be guaranteed to have one combo piece he needed for the next turn. So, um, yeah, the consistency really shined in his stream games, it felt like. And, you know, he made the right decisions and it ended up paying off 
and he got the dub for sure. Yeah, and they were both were playing the Orangaroo, which we didn't see in a ton of lists. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like it works in a lot of really, really cool ways in the deck, right? Like it, it helps you play around Marnie, of course, but then also conserves your energy to put those back in the deck or even stuff like Choice Belt, put that on top of the deck so you don't need it later. I guess the biggest uh, difference between those two lists, or the biggest thing, I guess, just in Lucas's build compared to literally everyone else is four collapsed stadium. Wild. <laughs> which, uh, which I think is a little bit excessive. That's a lot of collapsed stadium. That's a lot of dead cards in a lot of situations, especially once you put your first one in play. And then if your opponent knows you do that, if they rush to find theirs, once again, you kind of end up with a lot of dead cards. Um, went, went with no Punkaboo, so no aggressive out to stuff like Path or Sinnoh. But when you have four collapse, I think you'll probably be able to find it out pretty often. And there wasn't really that much Path or Sinnoh to have to deal with anyways. Yep. So... But yeah, four collapse, that's a lot of collapse. It gives you like a lot of board control, especially in the mirror match to get rid of your two prize Pokemon. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. That was just wild to see. Like no one else was even playing close to that. And Lucas, uh, we should also mention, did go 9-0 and in day one, which I think only a handful of people have ever done at an IC, right? So, um, I mean, it's really tough to do for sure. So congrats yeah. to Lucas on that and on the second place finish. He also did play only two Lugia V-Star which feels a little sketchy, but I think you can get away with it. I think you would definitely, like, if you're trying to make a consistency cut for something, I mean, you definitely cut a Lugia V-Star before you cut something like an Evolution Incense, right? Yeah, I think so, yeah, because, like, getting the Archives is so much more important, right. and the way the prizes trade out often, you only use one Lugia V-Star, maybe two, uh, but the maybe two comes up eventually, and you also have, like, Guru to, like, if you have, like, an awkward research opening, you have, like, the Guru, so you can, like, protect an Arceus V-Star so you make sure you have two later. Um, I guess the last inclusion to mention out of um, Lucas's list is the the two Luminian, which I think is uh, just the way to go from here on out with Lugia, to be honest. Two Luminian, I think, is super sick. We saw that from Stefan. We saw it from Ian Rob. Uh, I talked to Ian a lot about it, like different plays you can kind of make with it and stuff. And Ian was actually rocking the Burnett as well to have a little bit more utility with the uh, Luminians. Uh, I think two Luminian is just super super good uh, i guess another thing to mention that tor didn't play tor didn't play the crobat neither did lucas but lucas did have the second luminian to kind of fill that um fill that you know fill that role of just like more pokemon that have you know powerful abilities to see uh draw supporters and so on so tor does like the guru is pretty good at doing that too especially like protecting around marnies uh, which is like often where you find yourself using the luminian or the crobat as a response you get marnie you're like well i didn't draw a supporter but i got a quick ball on ultra ball okay, i'll go with luminian but guru you know being able to set like supporters on top and stuff can kind of play around that or even just like setting up capture energy or quick balls because like once you establish your archaeops all you need to do as long as you're ahead uh, until you need to find serena or boss is just find your next attacker so uh, but yeah the double luminian i think i kind of think uh from what i've when i've talked to people about it and kind of thought about how it works i think that's kind of the way to go with lugia from here on out is to play two luminian yeah, Double Luminion definitely seems very strong. We saw it a handful of times on the stream, and uh, Luminion is just such a good attacker into Lost Box, and then it's also really solid in the mirror, um, spe yeah. specifically on the Evil Tall turn, right? Or if your opponent is playing Raikou, you just attack, shuffle it back in, and then you can send up a one prizer, usually the Orangaroo or maybe Manaphy, something like that, so that you force them to have a Serena or Boss that turn, and just make them have as much stuff as possible. And it's one of the ways you can try to come back in the mirror when you're going second is just force them to have stuff because while the deck is very consistent and powerful, it's not always going to have everything it needs, right? So if you just enough times in enough mirrors going second enough times, force them to have as much stuff as possible, they're going to miss eventually, right? 
Yeah, I mean that's like the that's the hope, anyways. Sure. Um, Doesn't always. And happen. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of hard for people to miss Boss or Serena when they're playing Double Luminion. I guess that is also worth <laughs> mentioning too. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is tough. Um, uh, I guess like the, the next next thing to mention would be like, like I mentioned the Raikus. John and Pedro played Raikou. I'm personally not a fan of the Raikou. Not a huge fan of Raikou at all. What do you think about the Raikou, though, Chip? I think Raikou is okay. I mean, I think it puts some pressure onto the Lost Box matchup, right? It makes them find a mana fee. Um, small small pressure. <laughs> is that yeah, it that does was? also get KO'd by Cram, so like... <clears throat> sure, but it. I mean, it can take two prizes, right? Um, it can, yeah, yeah. It can, it can. And it's a one-prizer <laughs> that even if it's not taking two prizes, it is a one prize, another one-prize Pokemon that can one-hit KO Lugia. Right. And we did see John prepping with that with the three choice belt as well. Um, We actually interviewed when we were killing time, I think, between the top fours, maybe between top eight and top four. They actually interviewed Isaiah on the stage, who was one of the people who missed top cut on resistance. So he had the same amount of match points as the person in eighth, but was yeah uh outside and he's playing the same 60 as john so they interviewed him spoke to isaiah a little bit and on stage isaiah said i have no idea how any of the lugia players decided it was a good idea to play lugia with only uh two choice belts if you're playing two choice belts (laughs) you're trolling i don't know how you're i don't know how you're beating mirror if you're only playing two choice belts and stuff like that so uh, he was really calling him out on it (laughs) yeah no i i actually really like three choice belt as well um, it's way better with Raikou though. Yes. Without Raikou, it's definitely like, eh, is it, is it, it's still good because like, um, in the, the initial trade-off in the mirrors, like if you have the V guard energy, even with quad powerful, you don't get KO'd. So if you go first and you get a V guard energy, Lugia V star attacking turn two, you just don't get KO'd by quad powerful. So you need yeah. triple powerful plus choice belt. If you play two choice belt, it's a little bit harder to find. And then it towards the late game, um, you need it for Charizard potentially as well to go into the next Lugia V-Star. So you can go like Lugia V-Star, Yvital, and then if they go Lugia V-Star, KO your Yvital, uh, then you need to be able to get that Lugia V-Star with the Charizard, but that Charizard has to have a choice belt. So sure. uh, I can kind of trade off back and forth. Yeah, the reason I'm not a huge fan of the Raikou, though, like the biggest thing is like you can't use like you can't use Raikou, Yvital, and Charizard in the same game. Like if you look at John's list, there's four Aurora, a Speed Lighting, and a Heat. So you literally can't use all three and you're never going to want to use Raikou and Yivatol because that's like that you oh that'll almost never happen it could happen it probably won't happen um so then you're probably forced into one of them plus Charizard at that point Yivatol plus Charizard I mean that's why everyone just plays Yivatol and Charizard right Raikou is kind of like the uh <laughs> is not the is not the go-to for sure for that reason it's just too awkward to try and use it alongside the other two so you have to, you're like picking between them instead of using all of them in the same game consistently the other thing about their list to point out you know we talked about towards list max consistency fours of everything right these guys were skimping on the consistency a little bit right yeah. like we see three lugia v three archaeops three research um though toward i guess played four research two marnie they played three research three marnie so that's kind of like you know a so-so change i would say uh and also only two capture energies as well yeah yeah i'm not gonna lie i think three archaeops is absolutely trolling <laughs> i think like that's the one you actually want to max like like i think i'd max four archaeops before i max or Lugia V-Star, because or it's you don't really need... Or Lugia V, yeah, yeah. So I could even see, like, yeah, you could even, like... Like, the two V-Star from, like, Lucas, I, I even looked at that, and I was like, okay, I don't, like, hate that. But I think for... Like, you just need as many opportunities as possible to get Archaeops in the discard pile. I agree. So I think I would always max Archaeops. I would even, like, max Archaeops before Evolution Incense, I think. Because if you play an Evolution Incense to get an Archaeops, you minus your outs to Archaeops by two instead of one. So even then, I think I would max Archaeops before Evolution Incense. 
Because getting those things and getting them in the discard pile is the hardest thing to do, the most important thing to do. And once you use Lugi's ability, you're just set up ready to go. So I think, I'm not going to lie, I think three Archaps is kind of trolling for sure. I don't mind the three Lugia V-Star because in a lot of matchups, uh, if you go first, you just need one Lugia V-Star down. And in a lot of matchups, if you go second, you're still safe with your one of or can kind of extend to get two Lugias in play. So that one's like a little bit uh, less relevant. It also does allow you to open your one prize Pokemon more often by playing less of your two prize Pokemon, to be honest, which is actually like a reasonable thing that you want to do in like the mirror matches. It kind of goes back to like why people played like three Palkia V-Star, right? You actually don't really want to open Palkia going second. And when you go first, you can probably make it work somehow. Sure. And let's look at the other two lists real quick. In Pedro Pertusi's list, it was pretty similar to the other ones we've already talked about. Did have the one Sharon's Care, which I think is an okay card in the deck. Um, of course, you. I think if you're playing Sharon's Care, you definitely want the V-Guard energy in there. Usually, if your opponent is going to have to two-hit KO a Lugia, you're probably winning that matchup anyway, though. So maybe yeah. it's just a not-necessary card. Um, that's why i do like the so i mean the main reason to play it is the paralysis shenanigans sure. that people are trying to do which we didn't see very much of we just see a couple of palkias a couple of palkias made day two yeah uh, i actually just think bird keeper is like like you said if they use charon's care if you're using charon's care you're probably already won right because they didn't want to ko you so i think bird keeper is just so much better than charon's care because it's just a draw supporter uh at, throughout the game if you open it early uh and even into the mid to late game like if they hit your lugia and don't ko it you probably won, so you'd probably just rather see more cards. Uh, the only reason to play Charon's Care is just like for like the, the Lost Box matchup. But yeah, the only person bringing in top eight, the only person who had uh, any kind of protection from Paralysis, right? Which is yeah. like the Zekrom or the Articuno in, in like the Palkia decks. Yeah, and we talked about those techs a little bit last week as things that people may potentially play. And we didn't really see too much of it. I think I did see a handful of lists with the Zekrom. Obviously, we saw a couple of Palkias, but it really wasn't that much. Nobody really leaned into the strategy. And you kind of have to wonder if someone had, with how many Lugias there were, what may have happened. And then the. Yeah, it's definitely possible. The last list to talk about would be um, Kieran Faraz from Canada, who def had another really interesting one. Had. Four copies of trekking shoes in here, just trying to hike on through the deck, try to see those <laughs> Lugias off the first one, and or sorry, the uh, Archeops, and discard it. Uh, but speaking of the Lugia, the Lugia line was super thin in this one. A 3-2 Lugia V-Star, and then also did have the Mew from Celebrations in here as well. This one is definitely the most most unique of, uh, of these top eight lists. Yeah, the Mew's kind of cool. It kind of combos even better with the the capture energy for your attacker plus retreat into a strategy I was talking about because you could just send up the Mew, use Mysterious Tail, and then capture to it, get your Charizard, get your Yvital, get your Stoutland retreat, uh, and then attack with that Pokemon. But yeah, definitely a little bit less consistent. Once again, not playing for Archeops, <laughs> um, which I'm not a huge fan of. Also, I guess another thing to kind of mention, there's a gift energy in this list, and there was a gift energy yes, in John's list yeah. as well. Um, and the gift is a little cheeky. But uh, it is pretty cool to help you kind of stay in games uh, in situations where you're behind to allow you like pull off bigger plays on fo the following turn um, or to make sure you kind of stay ahead, right? It's like if you set up a big Lugia, a big Lugia with uh, four powerful energy and then you like sneak a gift on there, it's like, well, now even if you KO this, I'm probably going to pull off my next big attack on the next turn as well because I'm also going to make sure I have at least seven cards. So your Roxanne or your Marnie is not going to hit as hard. So it's kind of like maybe like a pseudo guru yeah. in that sense where you kind of protect against Marnie's give yourself a little bit more reach uh, going into your next turn. Um, but yeah, definitely a very interesting build, right? Um, I think uh, it's trying to be consistent in a different way with the tracking shoes, 
there's so many things you don't want to discard in this deck, especially when you have such a thin line of Lugia. I'm not really a huge. I don't. I don't think Trick and Choose can really fit into this deck super cleanly because of that. Like if you see an Aurora energy or a powerful <laughs> energy, you're like, well, I gotta keep this, I guess. Like, what do you discard? Unless you see Archaeops, or unless you, the game has developed a little bit, so you know where, where you know your win condition. Like Trick and Choose in the first two turns of the game just don't seem very good. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that your Trekking Shoes early game are going to feel very awkward. And it was funny, as you were talking about the gift energy, I was literally thinking like, hmm, I guess like this gift energy is kind of like a, a pseudo guru. And that's literally what you <laughs> said as well. Um, and I guess you wouldn't probably need, there's not really a need to play both of those, but I think one or the other does seem good. Um, it's maybe just a question of which one and probably just leaning towards guru. So you guarantee yeah. a specific card for Marnie, right? The gift energy is cool though, for sure. Um, also I, like smooth out your game plans make sure you can use your auroras make sure you can use your powerfuls which you saw toward do against grant making sure the stalin could get the quad the four powerful yeah. to ko like crams and stuff yeah uh i do think like if we see roxanne a lot a bit more in the meta in places then gift energy becomes quite a bit better than guru yeah. um but as of right now there's really not a bunch like the mudex play one and you usually can get through the deck pretty efficiently by the time that Mew is going to, because that matchup is so fast. Um, by the time that Mew is going to Roxanne, you usually can like kind of have your board set up. You almost set up checkmate, checkmate yeah. with your attackers you put in play, right? Um, making a big Lugia and an Evil Tall. And then I did want yeah. to talk about one other Lugia list, and that was actually Brian, Brian DeVries. I was going to bring that up, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> who got ninth place. Brian actually got second place at the last LAIC, so we were really kind of hoping to see a bit of him in uh, top eight, because that was a cool story we were kind of wanting to follow. We never got to feature him during day one or day two. It just didn't quite work out. But um, he played two copies of the Amazing Rare Evil Tall. Two Evil Talls. That's, that's pretty wild. Yeah, two Yvatal, so a little bit more power. You like it's a, like uh, and played a, a you know a decent amount of the 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 what's it called the uh, non colorless energy. You got four Aurora, two Heat, two Hiding, so you can actually consistently attack with both Yvatals. Unlike like I said, like with the Raikou build, when we see people add Raikou, you can't really use Raikou Yvatal Charizard, but this build can use Yvatal Yvatal Charizard. Yes. Um, so you can have some really cool lines of play with this build. Also, like you can kind of like. Uh, fake your opponent out like your first evil gets knocked out because you open it and then you hit him with the second one it's something they're just not even playing around at that point right so um there's some really cool plays that double evil can kind of lean into playing a little bit heavier on the energy count 17 energy here um and really heavy like compared to the other list no boss i think is a big thing for sure and i'm, I'm personally not a huge fan of that because i think it if your opponent knows you play no even if your opponent doesn't know you play don't play boss they're like well uh, I'm just going to set up a one prize right here. You have two prize cards left. If you don't have boss, I guess I win. And then they never do because they don't play it. So you always win there. So not a huge fan of the no no boss, but for Serena. Uh, lighter on the research, heavy, heavy on the Serena. Also had it, the bird keeper in there, so was afraid of paralysis. Yeah, had the res respect of the paralysis a little bit. Yeah, I totally agree about the Serena boss point. I think from all the mirrors we saw throughout the weekend, like Luminion into a one prizer was just a play we saw all the time. And if you don't have boss, then um or sometimes like you want to like boss a, a better one prizer, right? Because especially yeah. like in the mirror when you went second, a lot of times there won't be a two prizer on the bench, right? Because they only used one Lugia, you KO'd it with your evil tall, and then now they only have like Archaeops and Orangaroo on their bench and they send up Manaphy or something for the turn. Yeah. Uh, if you can use that turn to boss Guru or boss Archaeops, you're going to be in a way better spot. And especially if you boss Archaeops with a build like this that has two Evil Tall, it's like they're only going to make one still. So 
there's a lot of cool things you can do maybe once you know um, about, you know, specific lists. But that's kind of the beauty of, like, IRL tournaments. You just don't know, right? Yep. Yeah, definitely is one of the, the cooler things. Another thing to mention, I guess, every top eight Lugia list played Manaphy. Uh, a couple did not have the Dunsparce. Uh, Lucas and uh, John, I believe, did not have the Dunsparce. Uh, but everyone had Manaphy. Which I think is interesting. I I would I I feel like maybe pri- I I feel like the prioritization on Dunsparce over Manaphy made a little bit more sense going into the tournament, but um because I don't know what you're stopping with Manaphy. Cons- like Kyogre, I guess was a thing, but like besides that, who's sniping out here? <laughs> I don't know I who else is sniping out here. Maybe I guess, but it's a, I feel like Raikou doesn't matter because like my thing with this is why I don't like Raikou. This is another reason I don't like Raikou because like let's say you have Manaphy in play, not Dunsparce. Well. Uh, Raikou one hit KOs your active still, and if you have no no Manaphy or no Dunsparce in play, Raikou still one hit KOs your active. So if you have Dunsparce in play, they get to snipe. But the only thing to snipe off the bench is then the Dunsparce from the Raikou. Um, but after all of that, they could just Yvatol your active anyways and just not use the Raikou. So it's because I just don't understand why how Raikou ever fits into like the mirror match trade off. It like it feels like I feel like it never actually works out where it's like that important. Um, so that was interesting I, that pe- more people put priority seems to be on the. At least in the top, the ones that made top eight, Manaphy was kind of the. They're the trying one to protect had... those gurus, bro. They don't want their gurus. To get <laughs> okay, that so I guess that's the one. That's the one situation, right? The guru, if you have the Raikou Ko and your Lugia plus your guru, I guess that would be pretty annoying. Okay, yeah. So it protects the guru. <laughs> <laughs> Guru's living worth. And we also saw um, some uh, several funny plays throughout the weekend of people like putting. Um, v guard energies on their evil tall right yeah. so that so that uh they couldn't get ko'd by the what's Luminian. called the fish the luminian right so yeah those were some kind of cool plays uh that people would do that i guess toward didn't have access to or anyone else who didn't play the v guard energy so i don't know uh, all these differences so many different things going on obviously like the main power level of the deck is still going to be there um but of these top eight lists and maybe like top 16 lists what are your favorite inclusions, least favorite inclusions? If you were going to sleeve up Lugia, which I mean, I don't think I would expect you to, <laughs> but <laughs> if you were to sleeve up Lugia, which way do you think you're leaning? Uh, I don't like Raikou, and I don't think that really changes with anything that would like or like go into this weekend. Like, I don't think it really changes anything. I, like, Guru seems to be like worth it for sure. Uh, Double Minion, I think, is super sick um the, I think another thing that's super sick is is Brian's build with a double Yvatol. I don't think it's quite good enough to warrant playing over like other tech cards because you have to commit to a little bit higher energy count and all that kind of stuff uh, i think it is super sick i think it opens up a ton of like options in matchups against like mew and even the mirror match if they have a ton of if they're going like a heavier v-star route in a game or whatever like opens up a ton of lines of play um and does allow you to kind of be more aggressive with your first evil just throw it on your bench or if you open one you're chilling um so you get all that kind of cool options with the second evil so i think it's really cool but i don't think it's worth the the space commitment you really have to go with um and like speaking to your point of like how many there was like so many different variants that did well of lugia it's because even at the end of the at the end of the day when you play the mirror match it's still super close irrelevant of what cute stuff you have and they don't have right lucas has four collapse stadium uh and four capture toward with like the most straightforward build as possible then you have people like john with the raikou and triple choice belt and you know cutting back on your on your birds on your arc and your lugia so like at the end of the day there's so many mirror matches that are going to happen it's really hard to kind of get um to figure out what the perfect 60 is because that's the biggest deck you're trying to go up against is like another a lugia deck right so it's like really hard to like be like okay what should i actually bring um but yeah those are the those are the things i think i like for sure and then probably just why not rock dunsparce and manaphy to be honest because like it covers so much 
so much of the uh the matchup spread and then Stoutland probably is a staple at this point I think for sure yeah I think I agree with all those takes there I'm also not like the biggest fan of the Raikou um definitely like the Stoutland I think and I think especially heading into this weekend I would still like the Stoutland I think people will try things that are not Lugia right and I think Stoutland can capitalize on some of those things so I yeah think Stoutland very good against the unknown d- definitely needs to stay um and yeah, I mean, I also like the four captures as well. Say that uh, for sure. The four captures. I, I mean, I've I've loved capture energy like ever since it came out. I always am trying to put that card in decks when I can. So um, it is like the best. It's like literally the best special energy in the game for sure. It's <laughs> like hard to. It. It's it's only it's a colorless energy, so it's hard to want to play it in any deck because right. everything requires some type of energy. I mean, you even see people putting it in their Palkia deck, right? <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. You need two water <laughs> energies, but you know, capture is just so dang good. okay so let's talk about the other top eight decks one of them obviously you are very familiar with because you played it as well so grant manley got top four with the kyogre lost box deck so different from the sableye charizard version of the deck we do still have sableye and cramorant of course in here but as the other attackers we've got radiant greninja and kyogre to kind of lean on and then even some other options in here as well like the snorlax the raikou so there's definitely a ton going on this one you know we've talked about sableye charizard lost box how it's not really a toolbox deck it's a sableye charizard deck because you kind of do the similar thing this one feels a lot more like a toolbox because there's a lot of different options, a lot of different paths every single game, and what you attack with may depend on the matchup and the situation, of course. Yeah, this deck was like actually I didn't I played zero games with the deck before the tournament started, and it was like absolutely uh mind melting to like play. It's like so uh, so many things <laughs> to think about throughout a game. Uh, so yeah, it was definitely uh pretty I don't know what's stressful, but pretty intense games for sure um because you there's a lot to think about and a lot to figure out and like in in closed deckless scenarios you have to be thinking about like random stuff like collapse stadiums i went up, I went up against a couple kiram so i had to be thinking about cheryl's and stuff like that so uh, there's a lot that can uh go wrong just if your opponent plays a certain card and you don't know about it yet thankfully it's the best two out of three but this deck isn't great at playing three games so you don't really want to be put in that scenario i, I did close out a couple game threes um, but definitely not a spot you want to be in. But yeah, a ton of options, ton of different routes you can take. There's like even in in specific matchups, there's not like a certain route you kind of always look for or have to go down to kind of get the dub. So uh, a lot of different ways you can play every scenario. Um, but yeah, the deck's sick. Uh, I think it's better than Sablezard just because I feel like uh, what's called Stoutland hits Sablezard so much harder than it does this deck. Like this deck, you have the Snorlax Snorlax combo or the Snorlax Choice Belt combo, or you can just want to KO with Raikou uh, with Choice Belt, or if they they just fill up their bench. So. Uh, we have a lot of different routes to actually deal with the Stoutland, whereas the Sablezard build doesn't really have those those options. But I guess could start to kind of tech differently. Like we saw the Singer's build that got um, the Singer that won playing Sablezard had stuff like Snorlax, Choice Belts, and like Raihan and Twin Energy. I don't know if they had Twin Energy. I know they had Raihan. They did though. have Twin Energy. Yeah, two Twin yeah. Energies, I think, right? So, um, yeah, their list was really cool. And that kid played really well as well. I was really impressed uh, in that game. Though I did only get to see one, of course, and it was against Control. And he, I guess, just probably had a really solid game plan and stuck to it. But, um, yeah, yeah, so about this deck. And I actually want to ask you about the Raikou specifically. Um, I guess before I do that, where did kind of this deck come from? I guess, like, obviously people played it a little bit online. But, like, you know, of, of... the many ways that Lost Box could have possibly been played in this tournament. Why Kyogre? 
and like are you like where did where did it come from for you guys <laughs> so <laughs> um I mean, we were trying a couple of different things before the event, and then uh, Daniel Altavilla, uh, who shows up now and then to tournaments and works with us when he when he does, was just <laughs> playing a lot of Kyogre leading up to the event, and then uh, playing some games the day before the tournament, and he kept beating, uh, what's it called? Uh, kept beating Lugia with Stoutland in it. So we're like, all right, fine, we'll play Kyogre, because <laughs> we just basically didn't want to play uh, play Lugia. We're looking for something that wasn't Lugia. It's really hard. It's it, there's not much that can really keep up with Lugia and then also like be able to beat, you know, Mew and other lost box decks and stuff like that. But we're like, okay, this could do it. So let's just play this then. We were beating Lugia. We probably don't think the matchup's as good as our testing before the tournament was, but we're like, probably isn't worse than 50 50. Uh, if they have all three of the tech cards, if they have Manaphy, Dunsparce, and Stoutland, probably uh, unfavorable, but we don't think everyone's going to have all of them. Quite a few people did, unfortunately, for us, but there's a decent amount that didn't um and you could get you can get by sometimes like i beat i think the only person i played that had all three i beat them so um so yeah it was just like the deck the deck works and it can kind of beat everything like your mew matchup is really good and you're fine against sable's art as well uh and it's kind of the deck is so like unknown as to what you're playing you just have a huge advantage like like we kind of mentioned like closed deck lists like irl tournaments that your opponent just doesn't know your deck list so when you're throwing down random stuff with mirage gate they have no idea what to play around or expect and like that's just like a huge advantage in itself Definitely, absolutely. So, the Raikou specifically, I did want to ask about because I saw a little bit of a conversation on Twitter. Uh, oh yeah, people talking about how Raikou's not really a great answer into Lugia because you're just trading two prizes into two prizes, which was kind of a theme for people who were trying to counter Palkia. You know, people tried to play yeah. Raikou as a counter to Palkia, and that was kind of the summation right that raikou didn't quite really work because it was just trading two prizes into two prizes so you're just going even so it doesn't really help why does it work against lugia specifically though um it's because you have like the follow-up of kyogre to potentially draw you know two to like four prize cards at the end of the game so like you have the follow-up of kyogre um, or sometimes you just get ahead like if you just draw the first two prize cards with Raikou, then you're just ahead. And then say, like, okay, I KO this. And then you come back with a, a Lugia. And then from there, you could pivot, right? You can go like Cram plus Snorlax to get that KO or just go into another Raikou, get that KO. Um, so when you could just like get the first two prize cards with the Raikou, it just like puts you super far ahead and you could just kind of race them as opposed to play for the um, late game Kyogre. And actually, I think it's the matchup I used Kyogre the least in was the the Lugia matchup because it just, I could like race, I could race the majority of the time instead. Um, and just get ahead or, or you could like get the first hit with cram on a lugia and then they go lugia v star hit and then you go snorlax ko and then you go lugia ko snorlax and you go raikou one hit ko that and then once again you're just ahead and it doesn't really matter that they get another two prize cards on your raikou so it's just a super efficient attacker it was also i think more beneficial in laic than it will be going forwards because we hit a lot of like our group hit a lot of kiram in general <laughs> and it's really good against kiram because it ko's empoleon really efficiently uh, and then it also trades actually really well into Kiram VMAX because you can like hit them with a Cramorant and then go Raikou KO, get a two hit KO like that. And you don't really care that you gave up three prize cards for three prize cards. Like you're okay with that trade off. So um, it worked, it worked really well for that reason as well. We kind of just hit a decent amount of Kiram. It's like I hit two or three Kiram's myself. So that's pretty funny. Pretty good against that. Nice. Yeah. Well, Seems like a really fun deck for sure. Definitely seems, you said it was mind melting. Definitely seems <laughs> difficult to play. There is certainly a lot going on. We'll talk about it a little bit more for this coming weekend in the later half of the podcast. But for now, let's move on to the other non-Lugia deck in top eight, which was Sander Wojcik's 
control deck. I think anytime there's one of these international tournaments, pretty much one of the first players people put their eyes on is Sander <laughs> to see yeah. what flavor of control we've got. And the flavor this week, this tournament was definitely anti-Lugia. That is like the theme of this deck yeah. for sure. <laughs> also, Mew kind of is pretty solid, right? Uh, just special energy hate. So he, I would assume Sanders' thought process here is looking at the two most popular decks, Lugia and Mew, seeing that they play all special energy and just saying Evil Tall is very good against <laughs> these two cards, these two decks. Let's put four Evil Talls in here and uh, we'll build around it from that point. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I definitely think... Uh... Overall, Sander had, I think this is back-to-back ICs where Sander had the best deck and actually came in to top top eight with the best, with the first seat, first seat back-to-back ICs. Um, and yeah, had the had the best deck, I think, overall in the tournament. Um, so unfortunate to have have gone down to Tord in top eight there. Um, but I mean, that's still pretty consistent, pretty solid back-to-back placements from Sander uh, with, a, with another good control deck. I'm sure we'll see Sander do it again. Uh, in future formats at future ICs, uh, but yeah, definitely a lot of a lot of special energy hate, and then just like some other random shenanigans in here. You got the the Pidgeot V, uh, you got like a one of Mill Tank, the Greedent V, you got the Ice Q for the um, for the Lost Zone matchups. Try and get the Ice Q with the Wash Energy combo set up so you can kind of just utilize that as your only attacker. Ideally, get down to like a solo SQ, which is a little bit difficult to do. Um, but if you can pull it off, you can kind of beat Sablezard that way. They do have quite a few answers to it, though. Sinnoh, Escape Ropes, Cross Switchers, Boss, uh, and even Echoing Horn is a nuisance as well. So it's kind of... This deck actually, I think, has a pretty tough Lost Box matchup. I think it can be pretty tough. Um, but uh, when the most popular deck, you know, Lugia, is looking to be probably like 30-plus percent of the meta, you know, at these coming up regionals, I mean, if you just... If you have like a 90% win rate against them, it's, you're going to be in a good spot. <laughs> And this is different from the NAIC deck. We don't have any Mewtwo V Union, so there's no tank and heal. The format, I think, is obviously not in a great place for something like Mewtwo because we've got Lugia yep. that can just one-hit KO it, um, get straight through it, no problem. And the one thing I wanted to note, so, like, the NAIC deck that he played, his infinite combo was to use Palpad, Team Yells, Cheer, and Silene. And the only way that your infinite breaks, the way you never deck out, right, is if you flip a lot of tails, like a ton, a ton of tails. We actually saw that almost happen when he played against you in top four. Yeah. <laughs> um, he didn't flip enough tails to lose because of like you know not going infinite and decking out but he flipped enough tails to where it was like it let you stay in the game <laughs> long enough to yeah. win um for sure so yeah this one the way the infinite works is well the the most straightforward way is just pidgeot v right yeah. you can just put it onto the bench and shuffle it back into the deck and you never deck out it's a one card infinite and we do still have silene and Palpad in here so as long as you can hit at least one heads, you can always put Palpad back, which means you can always put Silene back, which means you can at least hit one heads and <laughs> always put Palpad back and try to keep that going potentially. And then the other way that this deck operates and kind of what its eventual game plan against things like Lugia and Mew is, um, is to get to zero cards in deck and have Bird Keeper in the discard pile, or I guess in your hand, and Eldegoss and double turbo energy. And then you bench the Eldegoss, grab the Bird Keeper, Bird Keeper into the Eldegoss, attach double turbo energy, and float up into the deck. You do 30 damage, 
once you have gotten rid of all your opponent's resources, right? So against these special energy decks, you get rid of all the special energies through a combination of um, Evil Tall and Sydney and Crushing Hammer, Flannery, any of these energy hate cards. Get to that point and then just 30, 30, 30 every single turn. And if you draw double turbo energy, <laughs> you can use Pukumuku to go put the Pukumuku on the bottom and then go get the Eldegoss. And then Bird Keeper, draw the Pukumuku so you can do it again next turn. So you can guarantee every single turn, use Eldegoss, never deck out. And this was Sander's strategy against Lugia. Well, you'd whiff eventually in there because you could top the Pukumuku. But if you get double No, no, Bird no, because you draw the Pukumuku with Bird Keeper. Oh, that's true. No, you're right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah. So the bird keeper makes it so you, yeah, yeah, you never whiff with one bird keeper. I thought you had to have the double bird keeper. You could even go the route of just having double bird keeper, and then you'll always have. Oh no, I guess it's not true because you're not always gonna have an eldegoss. Yeah. So the puke always makes it so you get there every time, right? Yeah. You never. You you can do it every single turn. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, there's like the infinite from the side lean as well. Uh, but yeah, not as uh, you can't like as aggressively like use supporter cards. Um, like you could with kind of the Silene build, it felt like because you're usually your Eligos has to be like recovering Birdkeeper or Charon's Care, like every single turn. Uh, and the Charon's Care loop you can set up off of your Pidgeot or the Greedent, specifically up against like the the Lost Box matchups where you like put one of those in the active, they hit you, and then you go, okay, bench Eligos, get Charon's Care, Charon's Care it up, send up Eligos, attack, repeat, right? So. Um, yeah, a lot of cool ways to to win games with this deck. I think it is a little bit more fragile than the Mewtwo V Union deck for sure. Like I said, the Lost Box matchup seems iffy, and I think people just knowing the list probably won't help Lugia, but <laughs> will help stuff like Mew and stuff to now beat it. Like I think this is definitely beatable for stuff like Mew with like Silene and Palpat and stuff like that. So um, I think knowing that this is out there, going to make it a little bit tougher for the deck in general. But uh, not for your Lugia. I don't, I don't see your Lugia matchup getting worse. I just see maybe your other matchup struggling a little bit. Yeah, I don't even know what Lugia could do. I mean, attack with Luminion is, I think, is like the best strategy. Just try to attack with it, shuffle it back in. But that doesn't work because he's got, yeah. yeah, he's got answers to it, and he's also got Mill Tank, right? And Luminion can't hit the Mill Tank. Um, so yeah, it's just it's just bad <laughs> for sure. Yeah, it's rough. <laughs> Definitely um, rough. I, I heard like some people talking about Blissey V, but I have um, seen that a little bit. Yeah, but there is a mill tank, so you can't hit yeah mill tank with Blissey V. So still, you'd eventually have to retreat into an Archaeops. Archaeops KOs the mill tank, but then you can go back into Blissey, and that does sound like you do set up a pretty decent uh, situation there. To be honest, like that doesn't seem terrible, like a terrible situation to be in. Because they have to recover the mill tank, and then you go back into Blissey, and Blissey starts swinging. I guess SQ could involve get involved at that point. Once again, the Blissey built up all the energy on itself, so it can easily retreat back to the Archaeops. Archaeops KOs SQ, and then kind of go from there. So I guess Blissey is like a reasonable, uh, a reasonable answer to be honest. That actually might be too much to deal with to be honest, because already it does get pretty close. I feel like overall, I mean, the big key card here, um, because of Luminian Loop, is the Radiant Guard War. Right, that's the big yeah. card in the matchup. Is Luminian does 120 damage. And if they can get knockouts while conserving energy, then Lugia kind of wins. Um, but because of the Radiant Guard War, they have to kind of go out of their way to boss KO that first. And then once you do that, you have Silene to potentially recover it uh, or get a Cape of Toughness on one of the Levitals as well at that point to kind of stop the, the Luminian KOs from there as well. So um, though that those little bit of like those one or two extra turns of Luminian whiffing knockouts is like what separates, well, what allows the deck to kind of the Yivatol, the the, the quad Yivatol allows the quad Yivatol to kind of beat the Lugia deck. Because qu like quad Yivatol without the Grading Guard War, without the Caves of Toughness, you usually you actually lose the the prize race to, to Lugia. 
this deck has an absurdly good Lugia matchup, like absurdly it's pretty good. good. <laughs> um, I watched one of Sanders' games in one of my off rounds to just kind of see what his deck was about, right? Wanted to see him playing it and see how it exactly worked. And I had to think as I went back, it's like, do we even want to put this on stream versus Lugia? Like, <laughs> like is it even... And I think like seeing the lock happen for the first time is interesting. But once you understand it, it's just like so mundane, right? It's over yeah. and over doing the same thing. Um, but it's like, I mean, this it, talk about a medical, right? Talk about a medical, knowing that Lugia was just going to be such a high percentage. Like, I mean, everyone knew it was going to be the most popular, but not only that it would be such a high percentage, but that all the best players were going to go that route. Uh, you know, Sanders just great at this type of deck and great at making those calls. Yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. Yeah, I think we'll definitely see it from Sander again. Yeah, definitely, like I said, definitely the best deck at the tournament, I think, by far. I don't even think it's really close at all. Um, so Sander's done it again. Hopefully Sander keeps doing it. It's really cool to see all the, the concoctions that Sander comes up with time and time again. So hopefully Sander can keep playing the game and uh, don't retire <laughs> and then keeps coming up, keeps, you know, pushing the, uh, pushing, the, uh, pushing the ceiling on the control decks and shows that it's still consistently viable. So we're kind of like going a little long on time here, which I didn't even realize we're at like 56 minutes right now. So we're going to uh, we were going to talk a little bit about some of the other interesting day two decks. There was a bit of Mew, some Arc Duraludon. We'll talk some about some of these decks, about what we think about them in the later section of the cast where we talk about um, this coming weekend. Right. What we think is good, what people should play, uh, unless you have anything you really specifically want to say about one of these decks at laic no i don't think anything really stood out to me i mean like there's just yeah just a sprinkle of everything right a little bit of tina a little bit of reggie a little bit of mew a little bit of lost box right nothing but no none of the lists really stand out too much to me or anything like that okay so before we move on to our next main topic which we'll talk about some of the disqualifications the judging stuff that went down at laic uh a little bit of a discussion comes up and this happens literally <laughs> after every single time that toward wins a major tournament is the discussion of who is the best Pokemon TCG player of all time. The goat. This is our LeBron versus Jordan. Um, toward versus Jason, man. So toward Reklev, I think everyone who's listened to this cast probably knows who toward is right. The four time internationals winner. He's won one of each of the four ICs. And then Jason Klasinski, who, if you, haven't been around for that long you might not recognize the name though if you've been playing even for just a few months you've probably heard someone talk about jason in some capacity the person who many people consider to be the best to ever play the game he won the world championships three times once in 2006 once in 2008 and once in 2013 he also won u.s nationals back in 2015 as well um won pretty much every level of tournament except for an internationals. And I do think he's only ever played at one internationals, which was NAIC yeah. in 2017. And I don't think he made day two. I think he went six and three, but you know, Jason is someone, I think that was the last tournament official tournament that he's played in was that tournament. And I, he's yeah. kind of taken just a step back from the game. He does still play a lot of Pokemon. He plays a lot of retro Pokemon. If you're ever wanting to play in a tournament with Jason, he runs out. I think a weekly retro format tournament on the play limitless platform where they use TCG one, 
which is a web browser version of a way to play the Pokemon TCG, which is not a fun way to play, by the way. <laughs> That's the one I have both played TCG one before. It is yeah, not, not fun. <laughs> it's like playing it's like playing Pokemon cards if it was in a Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> not fun. But yeah, Jason versus Tord. The big conversation here. The GOAT. Who is it? Azul kind of defining thoughts right away toward versus Jason. I mean, or maybe I guess just around the discussion, like this is always coming up. Right. So like, you know, people always are having this burning desire to figure out who the best is. Yeah. Um, I have usually kind of said toward in the past for quite a while, actually, but I actually had like a recent, something recently came up on my Twitter timeline that wasn't Pokemon related, but it was talking about kind of the same thing. of just like a greatest of all time. Uh, and it was in, it was for call of duty, not even for Pokemon. Um, but what one thing they said is like um it was like a situation of like a past player versus a modern player yeah exactly it was like past players versus modern players whenever they see a great of all time list they're like they they always feel like it's scuffed because no one takes into like because everyone is always like well the game's harder now so you don't even talk about players back then which is true i do think a majority of tournaments are harder now right more players more information um Maybe there's an argument for maybe it's harder to be consistent in tournaments these days, right? You could definitely make that argument. Um, I think it's probably true as well. But you can only play up to the ceiling of where the game currently is. And that was kind of their argument. It's like, sure, the game was maybe easier back when Jason played, but Jason still won Worlds three times uh, and still played to the ceiling to achieve that, right? Uh, and that's a, like if someone had won Worlds three times in the modern era, like from 2015 on, they would be considered the greatest of all time, right? No, no question, right? It wouldn't even be a question, right? And they'd be playing to the current modern ceiling of whatever that is, right? So I think it is with that. I'd never really thought about it like that. But now that I had heard that, I was like, that just makes a lot of sense. Um, and one of the one of the examples they gave was like, if you took uh, baseball as an example, you'd never rank any of the great baseball players over Babe Ruth. Like no one does. Babe Ruth is like the GOAT, right? It's not even close. It doesn't matter that the game is maybe harder now on average. Um, you just don't do it, right? No one knows. It's not really a discussion. And the, the one, like the biggest discussion of all time with this is uh, LeBron versus uh, Jordan, right? right? That's like the biggest right. GOAT goat versus GOAT discussion ever. And in Pokemon, we have Arthur Jason versus Jordan. I think it's just, I think now after hearing that perspective, a way to look at it, I like, I wouldn't even really, I think I would give it to Jason. I think I would give it to Jason. Um, if Tord wins three worlds, obviously we have to give it to Tord. If wins, if Tord wins uh, two worlds, we'd probably give it to Tord. Um, but you could also like separate them by their eras. And it's like Tord is currently the best player in the game. Jason was the best player in the game back then. You don't even have to give anyone the title of the greatest of all time, and you don't have to compare them. You should be like, you know, back then Jason was the best. Right now, Tord is the best. Um, but if I had to pick between them, I actually think with that new perspective on it, and of course there could be someone could say it in a different way that would maybe change my mind, but I've never thought about that like that. That completely changed how I thought about it. So I think I'd give it to Jason. Yeah, I hadn't heard that perspective before either, and I definitely um can agree with that. And the what you were saying there at the end is kind of how I have mostly thought about it. It's like, why do we have to compare, right? The two eras of the game are both so different. They I think it's obvious Jason was the best back then. I think it's obvious that Tord is the best right now. Can't we just like let that exist and be happy <laughs> about it, you know? Can't we all just get along? But yeah. yeah, I I think that I mean Tord does have a really great finish at Worlds, right? He got top 4 at Worlds in 2019. But yep. and which I mean, I think just making top eight at worlds is really difficult. Getting top four is obviously an incredibly difficult and 
I mean, each each level up is obviously harder and harder yeah. each each single time. That's <laughs> just kind of how it works, right? But anyway, we need another game. Yeah, um, I think that everyone would recognize someone who makes top four of the world championships is like a top tier Pokemon player, right? And I don't think that um, people consider that enough whenever they're thinking about like towards accomplishments versus Jasons. Uh, history just remembers winners, right? You know, the, yeah. and they kind of tend to forget the other things um, that don't, you know, the, the top eights and the, the, you know, even the smaller level tournaments, right? Like, you know, towards one regionals, he's won North American regionals and European regionals. I mean, yeah. he probably won every single Norwegian nationals. Granted, those were probably <laughs> a bit smaller of tournaments. <laughs> maybe a, I think I even said something to him one time. What I used to do, on my YouTube channel, I used to always interview people after they won major tournaments. That was like kind of one of the big things that I did when I was making a lot of YouTube videos. And I'd like to ask about the tournament run and then like questions and stuff like that. I remember asking Tord before the video, cause I was going to introduce him as like, it might've been like when he won his second one or third one, maybe like two time, three time international. And I was going to introduce, like talk about his other accomplishments. And I was like, and how many Norwegian nationals did you win? Or like, uh, and I think his response was something like, um, I mean, I think I won a few of them, but I wouldn't really worry about them. There was like 20 people there or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, he even kind of recognizes it as being something like that. But yeah, I mean, I think they're both obviously great Pokemon players. And uh, yeah, it's definitely an interesting uh, perspective on it for sure. What you mentioned of like playing to the ceiling of where the game is at at the time. Yeah, like you have no control over the ceiling, right? Like Jason could show up now and could do the same thing Tord did, um, or maybe maybe take away a couple of those ICs from Tord, right? If Jason was still playing, maybe Jason shows up. If Jason was showing up to these events, maybe Tord only has uh, two IC wins and Jason has two, right? Like, um, so you can only play to what you're at, uh, and then the 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 biggest accomplishment in the game is the World Championships, right? Um, so I think there's still plenty of time for Tord to, if Tord really wants to and cares about it, and uh, I'm sure Tord cares about winning still. So there's plenty of time for Tord to kind of you know, definitely make it clear that Tord is, you know, the greatest player of all time, but we can always just like separate into to eras. Cause I think it's definitely, there's a split there for sure. Right. Between the eras of Pokemon. Sure. Um, but yeah, if you, if I really had to pick one between the two, I think I would uh, just thinking about it that way, I would give it to, uh, would give it to Jason. Another thing that someone mentioned is like, there's so much more opportunities to win in the modern era than back when way more tournaments, Jason. Yeah. yeah. There's so many more tournaments. So that does make the, like the wins that you got back when uh, Jason was playing competitively a lot bigger to be honest like you only could go to I, I don't even know how many regionals you could go to back then but there was like one national championship that you went to uh, and then there was worlds right which is obviously the biggest term of the year but that was like a higher percentage of the tournaments you went to was worlds right like that was like of the major tournaments you went to so um it was definitely harder to win major tournaments back then because there was just less of them and the last thing aspect. last thing i'll say about this you know we talked i talked a little bit about like the retro format tournaments that jason will run every now and then again um, it looks like they do like once a month, maybe in the t November, 2022 EX mega battle tournament series, Tord and Jason did play in the finals of that tournament and, uh, <laughs> and Tord did win. So all right. I, that's settled. I it's think settled. it's settled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one off <laughs> tournament with 17 people <laughs> playing in it. They played in the finals. Tord came out on top. He's obviously the goat, right? Yeah. That's, that's good enough for me. Lock it in. Lock it in. So, all right. The all next right, thing ahead. to you talk about, yeah, the next thing to talk about here is kind of a 
it's a little bit of a touchy, like awkward subject, I guess. And that was a couple of disqualifications that took place at LAIC. So DQs at major tournaments are really nothing new. It feels like it happens at pretty much all ICs at some point. You know, there's a couple at NAIC, some for cheating, some for deck list errors and stuff like that. And um, I think that sometimes they are because someone is cheating and doing something malicious. And I think it's sometimes because something happened that could have been taken advantage of and they wanted to protect tournament integrity. And I think sometimes they get it wrong and the person didn't do anything that was worthy of a disqualification. I think all of these things have happened in the past. And so we'll talk about the two situations specifically. Um, I think these are the only these are the only two that I know of, at least, that happened at LAIC. Maybe something else the happened. Biggest, the biggest two for sure. I mean, I think there's DQs that probably happen every single event. Yeah. Um, but uh, not, uh, not as many are as high level as this. Or, I mean, some of them are just like kind of straightforward and it's just like, well you know, your deck list is not very close at all to what your deck was. You've been playing for five rounds and you know, they're like, you know what? You're right. You should DQ me. I did mess up. And they're not going to like argue about it or be like, I was scammed. They took away my (laughs) tournament run. I only had 30 decks that were in my deck on my list, but (laughs) the craziest one to me of that, that happened to Eric Smith uh, from rare candy (laughs) at a regional tournament. He submitted one deck, like a septile GX deck or something like that. Some bad deck at the time, by the way. <laughs> yeah. And then um, rolled up and played a Blacephalon deck. Like, he just, like, thought he changed his deck submission and didn't. Um, and played five rounds of the tournament. Started 5-0, and oh, I think. He got deck yeah. checked. And they saw, you're playing a Blacephalon deck. Your deck list says Septile GX. Or maybe it was the <laughs> other way around or something like that. I think it was the other way around. Yeah, I he think some, Eric got saved. He was playing. Yeah, he was playing Septile. <laughs> somehow managed to start off really well. Had submitted a Blacephalon deck, which is a way better deck. <laughs> <laughs> and their their determination at the time was instead of I think if that happened today at any tournament, that person gets disqualified. That's a DQ. Yeah, hundred percent for sure. And it should have been back then. Yeah. And I think Eric would maybe even admit it. Eric, by the way, is the guy who made like the graphics and stuff for our. <laughs> for our uh for the podcast here that we see on screen but i think um, eric would probably be like yeah i probably should have been a dq (laughs) but pretty much what happened is they looked at his deck list and in pokemon if there is an error they always resort back to the deck list and so they said all right eric your deck does not match your deck list you're going to get a game loss this round and then we're going to make sure (laughs) that your deck matches your deck list so they just let him play the blacephalon deck which is wild that 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 happened (laughs) definitely crazy yeah definitely probably not shouldn't have been that rule i mean yeah like two one or two cards off is one thing but a whole 60 cards playing a different archetype is a different type of energy yeah (laughs) basic energy yeah that one was wild but this story the the things that happened at laic maybe a little less lighthearted than that it's it's always like you can look back on those situations right a little differently than in the present these these are two situations both very much in the present so we'll start by talking about what happened in the masters division james cox a player who got top four at worlds very good player originally from australia lives now in the netherlands so he competes in the european region now um but still i think works with the the australian group a good bit he got disqualified from the event for a damaged sleeve and he posted a picture on twitter of the sleeve with just the caption dq'd 
And for the audio listeners who can't see it, it's even a little hard to see maybe in the, the YouTube video, but it is a small break in one of the corners of one of his sleeves, which in theory can create a marked card situation, which means if a card is marked, right, and you see it like in one of your prize cards, you could take that card off your prizes, right? Or if you're shuffling your deck, you can shuffle your deck so that that marked card is closer to the top or closer to the bottom of your deck, depending on if you want to draw it or not want to draw it, right? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of ways that players can and probably have in the past abused <laughs> um, having a marked sleeve. So what happened in this situation was that he got disqualified, but damaged sleeves is just something that happens over the course of the tournament, right? Yeah. So, and then this this situation specifically, I don't know, did you mention the card? It, it was a Luminian. I did not it mention it. was a, yeah. So in this situation, I think it was more harsh um, because it was a one of that was perceived as an important card. So they can kind of make a, a determination based on the, the card in the deck. So if it's a one of or two of, or if it's a really important card that's marked, it's going to be, you know, so if this had been like one of James's Aurora energy, they probably wouldn't have DQ'd him. Um, it doesn't mean this DQ was warranted, but they probably wouldn't have been a DQ if it wasn't the one of Luminian V. Um, yeah. So that's like a, a important thing to note. So as a Pokemon player, you are definitely, you, you are responsible for the quality of your sleeves and the quality of your cards, right? And if you think that something could create a situation where a sleeve could be considered marked by a judge during deck check, it should be changed right away. If a sleeve gets damaged more than yep. the other sleeves, change it right away. Swap it out. Always have extra sleeves with you. Always use sleeves from the same box. You know, Azul and I both use Dragon Shield sleeves, so they come in packs of 100. So... We are, I, I always keep the extra 40 with me. I imagine yeah. you probably do as well. So you, you always use the ones from the same box because sometimes if you you know get them from two different boxes, they'll be a slightly different shade, right? So that can create a different <laughs> marked sleeve situation. Um, just, yeah, be vigilant about it and swap it as soon as you notice something. And James' sleeve, by the way, I mean, I think like if you shuffle a deck that has a sleeve like this, you're going to notice it when you're shuffling, right? It's going to get caught sometime whenever you're trying to, I don't know exactly how James shuffles. So maybe depending on the way you shuffle, you maybe wouldn't notice it, but yeah, if you go like the bottom corners in first on like a mass shuffle um, or even a riffle, I guess it might not get caught as well on a riffle shuffle, um, but it definitely looks like a natural, natural wear and tear right yeah. from the sleeve. Um, and I guess the big thing would be like, when did, this happened like how much how much prevention was there possible from james of catching this right like if this was game two if they got deck check going into game two in a match uh and it happened on like the first <laughs> the first mass shuffle of shuffling up for game two um and like sometimes you won't you might not it might not snag immediately right so it might take a couple shuffles before you actually see that 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 top corner is catches something and feel it and then like look down at your deck and be like why is this why is this shuffle feel weird and then like oh i got a torn sleeve um so if we're just going into game two and it happened on the first mass shuffle from James going to game two and then they, the uh, judges come over like you're getting deck check like James literally couldn't have done anything about it right, um, so that's where it becomes like an issue of like yeah that's where it just kind of becomes an issue where it's like it's not the player's fault right the player couldn't have done anything about it so I think I don't think James mentioned that in their recap of the um, of the situation but that actually would be something I'd be interested to know is like when did uh, when did uh, the deck check actually occur because uh, it definitely looks like just natural wear and tear so if it came up with something like that that's kind of unfortunate for sure that's like the most unfortunate scenario for sure because there's nothing james like at the end of each round you could check all your sleeves and if you ever see like uh this actually come up a couple times when i've talked to people like if you see a card or a sleeve is marked in the middle of one of your matches 
just bring attention to it. Just be like, hey, this card, this sleeve is damaged. I'm going to change it. Just let your opponent know and just do it. You can do that. I've had a couple yes. of people who like have been scared with the idea of like doing that, like bringing attention that one of their sleeves is obviously more damaged in a weird way than the rest in the middle of a match. Like, don't wait. Just do it then. I do it all the time. Yep. Or like when I'm shuffling or draw cards return or I lay out my prize cards, I'm like, hmm, that sleeve is definitely messed up. I'm going to go ahead and change this right now. Like, that's fine. You can do it. If you want to call over a judge to watch while you do it, that's also fine. Especially if it's like a prize card, you can even have a judge do it if it's a prize card because that, I guess that is a little bit uh, iffy. You could bring over a judge and have them change your, pri- your prize card sleeve if you want to. If you want to. Um, but yeah, definitely don't be afraid to uh, change your sleeves in the middle of a match of what is really stands out from the rest. So James did post like a full... A, a good longer statement. He said he's going to do a full response later. So I just want to read what his response that he's posted for now is, but um wanted to say that while I think the DQ was incredibly harsh, I don't think it was entirely unfair. The judge put a lot of emphasis on my experience, which I personally don't agree should create the expectation of perfection. As I personally previously had the opinion that if I do what I expect the average player to do, i.e. not receiving twice per tournament slash meticulously paying attention to my sleeve damage and simply not cheat, I should never have grounds for disqualification. Something that based on my past, I'm absolutely terrified of, but I guess I have been proven wrong. And that expectation for me, who has been playing for a long time, is greater than what I believed was the case which I can deal with, but I think if this is to happen in this situation, we should at least be aware by the rules that we are being held to such a high standard. Also worth noting that this DQ was compared by a judge to Diego Casiraga's at NAIC, which was for even less. Yeah, so I don't even remember what Diego got DQ'd for at NAIC. Um, it was... But I agree- uh, a, a wrong, he had a different card it was like one card was different in his list from what was in his deck it was like a deck list error like he oh i would say that's worse than i'd say that's worse than the sleeve thing though yeah i think <laughs> that by was a judge was. which was for even le- oh is james saying that kasi raga's dq was for even less or that uh their dq was for even less i think there's oh. the judge was saying that diego's was less Oh, I think I think that's a worse offense than the sleeve for sure. <laughs> I think that's yeah. reasonable to DQ for. I don't think James's thing is at all reasonable for to DQ for to DQ, for to DQ for um, from the information that we have on the situation for sure. I mean, it's possible that James probably maybe should have checked their deck after the last round and would have seen the torn sleeve, but we don't know when the sleeve was torn. Like that's the biggest thing. When were they deck checked? Because if it happened, like I said, going into game two after game one. I mean, how are you gonna know, right? Like if you just didn't shuffle with the deck enough to have the 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 corner snag on anything nothing you can really do about it um and i definitely think like um players with more experience or with more accomplishments should not be held to a higher standard when it's an open tournament at all right well, and like, also when it's something that you can't really control right yeah you can't control sleeve dance. i mean i guess you could if you if so, some people shuffle rougher than others right yeah and so some people are just naturally going to damage more sleeves i guess but Overall, sleeve damage is something that's going to happen to every player. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, I don't think I don't think I should like uh, this feels like a pretty unreasonable DQ, uh, and definitely like that the judge bringing up that uh, the judge bringing up that they put uh, a lot of emphasis on their experience just seems really weird. I've never heard of that at all being approached in a ruling as like a way to determine an outcome of a of a of a penalty. Well, you can use someone's lack of experience to de-escalate 
right? Someone who's a new yeah. player, you know, making a gameplay error, right? You can de-escalate if, you know, you see it being... I mean, it, it, judges are allowed to escalate or de-escalate as they see fit. And this is a situation where it was definitely escalated because if we look at the tournament rules handbook, you know, a whole section about deck legality, there's two different recommended penalties for a minor deck legality issue a warning and for a severe deck legality issue a game loss and i think james's situation definitely falls under section what is it section <laughs> for anyone who wants to look it up 7.3.2.2 uh b it says severe deck legality infractions result in an opportunity for a player to gain an advantage, usually through ambiguity or discrepancy caused by dissimilarity between the deck list and the physical deck or by a pattern of marked cards. And one of the examples given is a card in the player's deck is damaged and has created a visible wear mark on the back of the sleeve along the damaged area, allowing for the card to be easily identified when face down. So very similar to James's situation. Obviously, it's not like the card damage. It's the sleeve being damaged but if this i mean this is a card that can be easily identified you know while you're shuffling or while the card is face down on the table if it's the only one in the deck that is like this right yeah of course of course yeah and that yeah so like the, the by the rules so there was definitely an escalated penalty then yes, for sure because right the recommended starting penalty for a deck legality severe penalty is a game loss so it was escalated yeah. but i don't think james had any priors in that tournament so if you have no prior warnings or errors or sleeve problems then it shouldn't have been the only reason it should have been a game again uh a d wait yeah it wasn't so what does it go game loss match loss dq is a match loss a thing i don't think so maybe it has been just at like, some point that's interesting. so the only reason to for this to have been a dq for james thing was that the judge thought that because of how much experience james has as a player which is which is a fair statement to make i guess but i don't think it's a fair way to handle a ruling um at all especially because it is an open tournament i could see it like if this was like a you know the top 64 players in the world only playing i could see you holding the players to a higher standard right yeah but when it's you know like i always say it's like t-ball to it's like you're going from t-ball to major league baseball uh player levels right i don't think that's like fair to hold some players to a higher standard than others the only place in the rule book that um disqualification is the recommended penalty is for unsporting conduct severe which would include things like um assault theft or criminal activity willing witful willfully lying to the tournament staff um determining the outcome of a match by random means the use of profanity slurs physical threats or insults towards any other attendee so that's one way that the rule book recommends disqualification and the other way is for cheating palming a card stacking your deck any of those type of things yeah wait what was the first way again sorry i zoned out for a second there. <laughs> <laughs> severe unsporting conduct so like lying assaulting yeah, yeah. Okay, someone okay. <laughs> stealing yeah, something yeah. um or flipping a coin for a match right determining yeah. the outcome of a match by random means these are all grounds for disqualification in the rule book oh, okay so those are the only things mm -hmm. is it yeah, the, the, that one of the recommended penalties is disqualification. Now, again, can escalate or de-escalate as they see fit. And, I mean, usually you escalate to a DQ if you think someone cheated or the possibility of cheating could have happened, right? So I don't think yeah. that this is a situation of the judges or tournament staff saying that they think James cheated. It is a way of saying that 
um, the sleeve mark was so bad that it is entirely possible that, you know, cheating to gain a significant advantage could have occurred, right? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Which maybe, I, I guess that maybe is, I don't know. It still feels bad. <laughs> it still feels wrong. Yeah, I'm going to go with, I feel like, uh, definitely seems like an unjustified disqualification of James there, for sure. So the way that I would tell people, like, I don't, I think that there's been a lot of discussion on Twitter um, about this situation and people asking, like, well, what am I supposed to do if I'm going to just get disqualified for my sleeves being damaged or having normal wear and tear on them? What are the things I can do? And Chris Shemansky, a judge, you know, well-known judge in the community and player as well. He played at LAIC, made day two. Shout-outs to Christopher. Mm -hmm. um, posted a little list of things that he recommends that you could do, you know, to help make sure. And one of the things that he mentions in this little list was to, um, after sleeving, and then after each round, look critically at all six sides of the deck. So, like, hold the deck in your hand. Look at the front, the top, sides, top, bottom, other side, all those things. And try to determine if there's anything that looks out of place that you could, you know, change to to make sure. Which is, you know, I, I mean, not something that I've ever really done. Probably not something Me you've either. ever really done. <laughs> no. But maybe it's not have... a bad idea if this is something that's going to start happening at tournaments. Yeah, I have checked my sleeves before uh, at some point. It's funny that it's funny that it, that uh, Chris says all six guys because if you look at the bottom of the deck, it's just one card. <laughs> so, like, yeah, but if like something's just... sticking out to the side or something. Oh no, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. fair. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> You're only looking at like the face of one card. So it's like, well, what about the other fifty nine? You know, like we have to. Are we, we gotta look at, at it fifty nine times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then and then repeat step six fifty nine times. Um. But yeah, I mean, I've like checked my, I don't really, I resleeve like going to day two, I always resleeve personally. Um, I just like, feel like my sleeves are a little bit worn out by nine rounds. I like the fresh feel. It also eliminates the the factor of, you know, one card gotten like a really damaged corner or something. And that being something like a situation like this for James. So I always resleeve from day one to day two. Personally, I know a lot of people don't do that. And sleeves, I mean, they're not like super cheap, right? Sleeves aren't super cheap, right? It's like five, 10 bucks for a pack for enough for a, or what's it called so doing that every single tournament does add up so yeah not everyone's able to do that so most people you know use their one pack of sleeves um throughout day one day two which is fine but then yeah i say maybe especially like if you're going from day one to day two i would definitely check your sleeves for sure like if you're playing the the, the same sleeves on the deck i would look through at the backs of all of each individual sleeve and if something is uh like penalty worth it'll probably stand out to you even though you're not someone who you know routinely checks decks or anything it should stand out to like any player if something is bad enough where the sleeve needs to be changed and then one more situation we'll talk about which happened in the seniors division to a player named owen delagard and his dad clifton made a statement and posted it over on twitter i think the best thing is probably just for me to like go through and read it posted a twit longer it's kind of a long situation so we'll just go through and try to read it pretty quick it's just a couple paragraphs here okay LAIC disqualification of an innocent young man. Today at the Pokemon Latin America International Championships, Owen was disqualified from the entire tournament. The event is upsetting and it uh, truly brings uncertainty into the spirit of competing in the game we have grown to love and make lifelong friends and connections with. After Owen completed round seven and final standings were posted with Owen making top eight cut, the eight players waiting approximately had an hour before play was to start. 
Right at the moment before Top 8 was to start, the head judge and a tournament director called to talk to me. They sat me down and informed me that they had concluded an investigation and made a ruling which has been finalized and that they were disqualifying Owen on the basis of me signaling to him during the rounds of the event and the decision is final and that they were starting Top 8 right away. They stated that Owen did nothing wrong and that they had, quote, witnesses that I was signaling to Owen. They would not supply the judges that made the witness statements, only to say that there are four judges that witnessed it, and then retracted and said that the four judges, judges were not witnesses, but were part of the investigation. The details of our viewing place was very far from the tables. No one in our group could see any of the cards on the table, and it... First, the director said that I was providing hand signals, then changed his statement to say I was providing face signals. I rebuttaled and said how this is I rebuttaled and said how is that feasible while wearing face masks in the event. Furthermore, I was with several families and players that watch US players. All who wanted to supply eyewitness statements that were not even that we were not even watching that final round completely. The director said he would not take any of their statements because they were foreign and biased. Even one adult who doesn't know us or Owen went to supply a statement and was not acknowledged. The process was flawed. The investigation was conducted without taking any statements or additional evidence from my son directly or myself or any of the witnesses in the area. They would not allow me to discuss with any of the judges as they decided they did not want to expose the judges to me or the other parent witnesses. They did not supply any objective evidence about how I was signaling. Also, I wasn't in the area for the entire round. I went to watch John Ng on stream and interview, and I also talked to Xander Perot for a few minutes. Also, for those that play, I think there is a strong understanding that if I can't see the board or hand, how can I influence the game? Finally, the ruling was delivered in a finalized state, and a full tournament disqualification is highly severe for a lack of evidence. The director made this statement. We may be making a mistake, but the decision is final, and you can submit a support ticket. Do you require anything else? I can't fathom all the factors or influences that may have led to Owing being affected by this. I don't want to believe in a world where a 14-year-old young man is targeted. And as a father, I don't know what the lesson may be here. There are many. We may, but we are devastated, and the game, we, and the game will never be the same for us. There should be safe environments for young players. For those that know Owen and myself, I hope you trust our characters, and I hope we can make the game a safe place for all in the future. <clears throat> yeah so i was there and heard about this going on uh during the end of of day two um and after hearing everything i've heard and obviously we haven't seen like a statement from i don't even know who you who would the tournament are is it, is it copag mm -hmm. yes. um so i don't know if they will make a statement at all um or anything like that um but it does seem fairly impossible for any kind of hand signaling or anything like that to have had any effect on the game or it also seems like it's just like not so, like from the information we have it seems kind of ridiculous that owen was disqualified from the tournament like um from everything we've heard so far 
from this statement. Like it just that's just it also just seems like ridiculous. <laughs> like the story seems ridiculous. That's all we're trying to use hand signals, and then story was changed to face signals um, to uh, to help Owen in their in their last round match. There, like all that just seems kind of absurd. Uh, and obviously, we could get a statement from uh, from Copag at some point. I don't think we will. I don't imagine they would. Um, but it would be nice to see this disqualification at least be reversed in terms of because um, if you get disqualified, you don't get any of your prizes. You don't get uh, the, the tournament winnings. You don't get championship points. You don't get any booster boxes. So it would be at the it would be very nice at the very least to see that reversed um, if no other information comes to light. Because this just seems like Owen just kind of got screwed. Yeah. So I don't really know. The Dalagard, super personally, I've talked to Clifton a handful of times at tournaments. He's very nice. And, you know, I've watched, you know, as I'm walking through the tournament, I'll peek in at the juniors and seniors from time to time. I've watched some of Owen's games. Everything has always seemed fine to me. Um, yeah, I mean, I think they're both great people. Like I said, I don't know them personally, but everyone who I know who does know them personally says they are great people. And I don't think that someone being a great person should automatically eliminate them from the possibility of ever doing something maliciously, right? Just say that out there. Now, me personally, I don't think that they were doing anything maliciously, but just because you think they're a good person doesn't mean that it's not possible for something like this to happen. So I think that, you know, just for all situations in life, people should approach things like this with a little bit of nuance and with a little bit of that thought behind it. Because at the end of the day, we see these people who we know at Pokemon tournaments a few times, once a month, you know, a handful of times a year. You know, these are not people that we're seeing on a weekly basis necessarily always. Like sometimes you don't know people personally, right? You know them at these Pokemon tournaments and you know them away from their real life. Now, all that to say, um, I don't think that there was any wrongdoing, like I mentioned earlier, like just from the facts that we have right now. Now, I think if Copag or the Pokemon Company was to, the Pokemon Company International, was to release a statement with some different information, maybe that opinion could change, right? Um, but with what we know right now, it seems like this investigation was conducted terribly. Absolutely yeah. <laughs> terribly. They, the fact, the, the, the statement of um, that, what was it? The director said he would not take any of their statements because they were foreign and biased. Whenever they are literal <laughs> witnesses who were standing right there is outrageous, is outrageous. Yeah. If you think people who are, um, I don't know. So, and the fact that they didn't talk to Owen or the dad during the investigation as well um, is kind of weird and scary, right? I think that yeah. they should have probably both been interviewed. I think that the opponent should have been interviewed. Owen's opponent probably should have been interviewed. I think that, um, and from what it sounds like Owen said is, or uh, sorry, what uh, Clifton was saying here as well, from where they were standing, they could barely see the table. So yeah. I think that that's something that's very easy for the judges to replicate, right? Go stand where Owen was, or sorry, where Clifton was allegedly standing. Go look at the table where, Owen was playing and see how much you can or can't see if there's anything reasonable you can gain. There are so many things here that, um, and that may have been part of their investigation. Who knows? We don't know because they haven't said anything. Um, it definitely feels like 
things did not get handled entirely properly in this in this spot yeah yeah i think a good life lesson overall so not jump too quick to conclusions on one way or the other um like what you kind of said chip like yeah don't immediately go uh until we have some information but if but if copag or you know someone from pokemon is not going to provide more information this is all we have to go off of so at this point yeah as of right now with the information we have uh, i think it definitely feels like uh, a very flawed situation on the side of the tournament organizers and um i i mean i think uh from what i can tell i think the the term investigation was overly misused by the tournament director because that doesn't sound like any kind of investigation went on it sounds like someone thought that was maybe possible um uh what was happening was that there was possible some signaling going on to owen uh and then maybe they just brought it up to a couple other people and described the situation the other four judges were like yeah i guess that could that could be that and they were like all right that's it they were signaling disqualification it does not sound like any kind of investigation actually happened at all so yeah definitely uh yeah that's that sucks hopefully at the very least the the, the placement of top eight can be reinstated for owen and owen can uh, you know get the prize and championship points and pay out for being for making it to top eight um at the very i mean that's kind of all you can do so hopefully that at least happens and uh yeah hopefully in the future these kind of things are actually more thoroughly investigated if they actually think someone is, you know, you know, signaling uh, a player in a in a tournament. Because yeah, yeah, that just sounds like a that's a really unfortunate situation. An investigation. So this is an entirely different situation from the sleeves, right? That can be handled like yeah. as you're looking at the thing. This is you know trying to backtrack to recreate an event that happened potentially, right? As far as like what an investigation should do. You can't do an investigation by just having a handful of people talk about what may or may not have happened. You have to go try to like practically see what could have happened and also talk to people who were there when the alleged thing supposedly happened, right? And it doesn't sound like yeah. that was done at all, So, which is very sad to hear about. And um, I mean all I can say is I'm very sorry to Owen that this happened and – uh, I agree with Azul. I hope that Pokemon can do something to make the situation right, or they can release a statement that has further findings that would maybe further justify this disqualification. But I don't think that's probably going to happen because yeah, I don't it probably doesn't thing. exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think that evidence. I don't think that evidence uh, exists in this situation. Uh, so yeah, just a, just a, just a really unfortunate situation overall. I mean, yeah, hopefully at the very least reinstate the top eight placement, but that doesn't really fix the. Uh, the overall experience from Owen at the tournament for sure. Well, we can move on from that to a little bit of a lighter note. Man, we should have picked this at a different spot because this is like kind of a sad place to transition from. But <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into guess that flavor text. Yeah. Woo. Yeah. <laughs> so guess we're we'll move on here to guess that flavor text, which is everyone's favorite segment of the podcast where each week Azul or I will pick a card and read the flavor text off for the other host to guess what Pokemon we are thinking of, what card we have picked. And you do have access to several different lifelines. If you get the Pokemon correct without using any lifelines, you get four points. But for each lifeline that you use, you lose a point. And the lifelines are what set the card is from, what stage the card is, and read an attack name. And it is my turn this week to pick a card for Azul. 
I do believe I am leading right now, Azul, by the way. I think I am up five to four. Five to four. I absolutely spiked it last week, by the way. If you missed last week's episode, no, bro, spoilers. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) I was literally going to say go back and listen to it. I mean, it's still a good listen to to watch it, the build up to it. Yeah, it was a pretty, uh, uh, pretty proud of that one, I'll say. But uh, <laughs> it is my turn this week to pick for Azul. I've got a card picked out, and uh, if you're it's ready, Azul, we can hop into it. How are you feeling? You, you feeling okay? You, you gonna tie it back up, or you gonna pull ahead? I mean, if you were able to, gra- to able to guess Crocorock last week, then anything is possible. All right. Well, we're gonna hop into it. I'm only reading it one time. You don't get any other reads. That's not how that works. Okay, you're right. All right go ahead. It flashes the light, emitting spots on its body, which drain its opponent's will to fight. It takes the opportunity to scuttle away and hide. All right, one more time. It flashes the light, emitting spots on its body, which drains its opponent's will to fight. It takes the opportunity to scuttle away and hide. All right, well... it sounds like some kind of like ghost Pokemon because of the, uh, you know, flashes the light, takes away their will to want to fight. But I don't know. I'm trying to think of, I can't think of any Pokemon with spots on its. Oh, all right. I think I already know what it is. I think it's Orbeetle. I'm just going to go ahead and lock it in. Orbeetle. Locking it in. Wow. Locking it in Orbeetle. That is very wrong. No, <laughs> no. What? But Orbeetle has like light coming out of it. It has spots on its body. It does. All right. What is it? Well, we, I thought I had a. Let's let's. <sighs> you, you thought you could have gotten the four pointer, but you were quite wrong. And if anyone listening thought Orbital, they were also wrong. We'll go through the <laughs> lifelines though. Give us a one more guess, just for funsies. He's already lost his points this week, and then of course <laughs> this will allow everyone at home to potentially get their guess in as well. So the card is from the set Forbidden Light, which is a set that came out before Orbital existed. Yep. Um, the card is a basic orbital is a, uh, stage two. <clears throat> True. And read an attack name. The attack name is hypnosis. So a basic I... with hypnosis from forbidden light as a forbidden light was with a set with alternate crossman, right? That's correct. I don't know. Uh, in K it is in K <laughs> no, <laughs> No. It is Inke. It is I'm thrown. <laughs> I would have probably needed Zero all three points. water spells as well. Zero points. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I would have needed all those to get there as well. And hey, listen. The Forbidden Light guess would have helped you too. Yeah. Forbidden, well, a little bit maybe. Well, yeah, yeah, it would have. Yeah, because I do know there's an ink. Wait, but that's not where Malamar came from though, right? It is. No. Oh, is it? We had Ultra Necrozma and Malmar in the same set? That's not true. We had we had Malamar before Ultra Necrozma. You want to bet five bucks? Because we had like Psychic Malamar, right? Wasn't that a deck before Ultra Necrozma came out? I swear. No, 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 no. Ultra it came out at the same time? Ultra Necrozma and Malamar came out at the same time. And Psychic Malamar was not good until far later. And it did well, not there was like the There was like the the Necrozma Marshadow build. The Marshadow EX build or whatever. Oh, yeah. All right. uh, gas can or whatever, right? <laughs> There was that as well. That was like after, though. Yeah, no, they came out. They both came out in Forbidden Light, buddy. It's okay, though. Oh, okay. All right. Really? What? All right. Yeah. All right. That's fine. All right. <laughs> Moving on. Got a lot of tournaments coming up this weekend. Not just Toronto Regionals here in North America, which is looking to actually maybe be the biggest 
regional or the biggest tournament of the sea, biggest tournament of the year. Not biggest. It could actually be the biggest regional ever. So the stat I saw from Shemansky on Twitter today is that it's shaping up to be the largest regionals ever and the yep. biggest tournament of the year. So that means bigger than NAIC this year, which was like 12, 1100 something players, something like that. Yeah. But that will be probably getting trumped by Dallas two weeks from now, which already has 1400 TCG players registered, whereas Toronto is currently sitting at uh, 1268. So almost 1300 at Toronto, but 1400 registered for Arlington. So it's a short lived uh, largest regional winner ever potentially here this weekend. But also there's a regional in uh, Stuttgart over in Germany, Germany yeah. right? Germany. And then Brisbane over in Australia. So three regionals immediately following up LAIC. Uh, yeah, I mean that's a lot, uh, a lot of tournaments to follow up the the first tournament of a format for sure. So a lot of a lot of could see a lot of cool things coming out of of each of these regionals. I expect most of them will probably all of them will be dominated by Lugia though. Yeah, I think there is still going to be plenty of Lugia, and I guess that's really the first question here: is how do people react to Lugia's dominance? Do they just play Lugia? <laughs> if you can't beat them, join them uh, and try to build a really consistent list, or is there some tech that improves your mirror match? Or is there some really strong counter to Lugia? Because Lugia, as a deck, it's a pretty straightforward strategy, right? You're going to do something similar every single game. And there are things about Lugia that can normally be very heavily exploited in the right spot. You know, plays all special energies, which we saw Sanders' deck specifically took advantage of that, right? So yeah. the question, I guess, becomes... Lugia account what what do you expect more of people who so like obviously a decent amount of people going into these tournaments already know what deck they're going to play right people decided yep. last week what deck they were playing for the tournaments this week um and a decent amount of them probably decided Lugia so the people who haven't <laughs> decided do you expect more of them to try to play something that would counter Lugia and or do you expect more of them to just kind of fold to the fact that Lugia is the best deck and play Lugia themselves? Um, the people the in problem that in-between spot. Yeah, so the thing with Lugia is, like, I'm pretty sure Lugia could probably play a counter card for every single counter. Like, I, there's probably even cards out there. Like I said, we mentioned the Blissey for the control matchup, uh, but there's probably other cards you could play that would be even better. I'm pretty sure Lugia could basically play any card. And that card would counter uh, any card that you use to like counter. There's a card in Lugia. the format that exists that yeah. can, that Lugia can play that answers it, its counters. Yeah. So you need to be ahead of the counters. You need to be ahead of Lugia countering your counters, basically. Sure. Um, so right now, there's not too much. We saw some people try to rally it on an LAIC. Did it go very far? As long as people are playing vacuums, it's not a very good answer. And even if you don't play the vacuum, if you just go first in that matchup, sometimes that's enough to win. If you can't set up a Duraludon with a Parasol, you literally can't uh, beat Lugia. So um, I don't really think there is anything that like counters Lugia. There's some decks out there that go go fine up against it. Like the Lost Boxes are usually generally fine. Uh, and Mew is pretty close. I would say overall unfavorable. Uh, but if people start to cut Punkaboo and stuff, maybe you could take advantage with like the Pats of the Peak Mew for sure. So I think Lugia, like we've kind of talked about this, I think last week was just like, we're going back into another format of that tier zero tier S deck. Like we had with Palkia, Mew and ADP Zation. Um, but I think this might be the worst offender in that kind of format where it's just like, 
I don't know if there's anything <laughs> that you can really play. Like, there's like almost not a reason to play anything besides Lugia. Like, I'm I'm going to be trying at all costs to not play Lugia this weekend, but it's going to be hard to come up with another deck again where like you feel comfortable comfortable enough to beat Lugia, but still you still have to beat other stuff too. You still have to beat Mew, uh, and you still have to be able to do fine against Lost Zone decks. But if but it's like hard to find a deck that can do that. It's just really hard. I don't know. It feels yeah, Lugia feels too good. So let's say theoretically that someone found a deck that 100 owes Lugia. Like you beat Lugia every single time you play it. Okay, maybe we shouldn't say that because it will never exist. Let's say you yeah. find something that 90 tens Lugia. Right? Yeah, yeah. 90% of the time you're going to win. 10% of the time, you know, Pokemon things happen. You beat anything else? Uh, but you have to auto lose to either Mew or you have to auto lose to either Lost Box. Do you take that? Or I think I would, yeah. You, so you you think this weekend it would be okay to play a deck that loses to Mew or loses to Lost Box? Yeah, I don't think you could like hard lose to both. Like, I mean, even if you like 40 60 both of them, I think that would be fine. If you won 40% of the time against Mew and 40% of the time against Lost Box, but like 90 10 Lugia, I think that would be fine. As long as you have to like not lose to all the other random stuff too. There's going to be a lot of people coming up with their counters to uh, <laughs> counters to Lugia that really aren't counters. You know, they maybe just beat a couple too many people on the BTCGO ladder and got a little <laughs> bit too confident, and now they're sure. bringing uh, stuff like Arceus around. <laughs> um, so, Zorobox or yeah, yeah, stuff like that. Where like people are bringing it thinking that they have a fine Lugia matchup, but uh, in, in truth, they really don't. So you still have to beat you have to beat the other decks, right? Like, and even at uh, LAIC, like I said, like I played against like three Kiram's or whatever, so. You have to be able to handle the random stuff. But I think the uh, the format's definitely going to be a little bit more centralized around Lugia than it was at LAIC. There was like 25% day one. I think it'll be closer to 30 40% here at uh, at these tournaments. And I could even see it being ridiculous at Brisbane because it is a, a smaller regional. And I think uh, from what I know about the what people generally play over there, it's like play, a lot of people just like to play the best deck uh, over in Australia. So I could see it even being higher than that at uh, Brisbane. Yeah, if you've think- got Toronto, probably similar. So how much for at the top end, right? The top, you know, 1% of players that are people who competed at LAIC and who are now going to be competing in these re- these regionals in various different countries. Um, what percent of them are even going to be able to have the time or energy to commit to finding anything? And then what percent of the, I mean, because I, I expect a decent amount of people to just be like, I just got back from LAIC. I just traveled for, you know, especially Australians who had to travel like 30 hours back home. Right? <laughs> it's like they're going to get home and then have to leave the next day to go to Brisbane. Um, like some of them are probably still not home right now, which is crazy um, when we're recording. Um, I, I like, do you think there's some not zero amounts of top level players that will just play lugia again because they just simply don't have the time or energy to commit to finding something else maybe just change oh yeah i think that'll be i think it'll be a decent amount of players will just play lugia again like i expect like i don't know probably uh i guess as far as like the americans i mean a majority of them that played lugia will probably play lugia again or i expect even more so a decent amount of them that played or a decent amount of Northland players that didn't play Lugia that played in LAIC will probably be converted to playing Lugia now going. I think there's going to be more people now switching to Lugia than switching off Lugia for sure. Interesting. So, I mean, across all of the three top eights, right? So we got three top eights. So 20, what, 24 spots, right? Out yep. of those 24 spots in the top eights of the three regionals, how many do you think are Lugia? 
Ooh, uh, maybe a little bit, maybe like sixteen. So still a pretty high, high number, but maybe some more, just more lost boxes. Or maybe Mew finally shows up. <laughs> maybe we'll have someone show up with me. Like I feel like Mew is the one of the decks that I would not, never be surprised to see it in top eight, even if I don't think it's a great play because, uh, the lost box matchup is tough. Uh, and then even against Lugia, it's not like you're extremely favored or anything. So I'll, I'd give it to Mew, I guess. Yeah, I think. Oh, I think Mew's will squeak in. I'd give it like a sixteen. Sure. I mean, twenty-four. I, I could. I'm. I'm gonna go with eighteen. You know, just <laughs> put it a little higher up there. I. Yeah, I agree. Lugia is going to still be insanely good. Um, I think they're. You know, we saw twenty-five percent day one meta share at LAIC. I think it could be like. 35 plus percent day one meta share in toronto maybe even more i don't know like we're getting into territory that has never happened before something that there has never been a deck that has been that heavily played i think in day one of the tournament we would have seen it with adpization if we had had more tournaments in that format but we got got cut short we had ocic and then some uh, regional in europe i forget the name of it and then that was it. But if I think if we if that format had progressed, I think ADP Station definitely could have gotten to unreal numbers of popular because that I mean I think the deck was uh better than we saw through online events because online events is it was just like way less on the line, right? Sure. And speaking of online events, there's a couple interesting things that have popped up. One of the big ones I saw on Twitter recently, someone did go nine and zero with an Intellian Beedrill deck that also played Radiant Charizard. So kind of similar thing to like what Piper won Baltimore Regionals with to start the season off, the Intellian Charizard deck, similar to what Ross got top 16 at Worlds with, right? Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, you throw a single strike mustard in there and a couple of Beedrills. I mean, this is what I was talking about, right, with Lugia being a deck that, you know, is very streamlined in what it has. You know, it's got all special energy. Beedrill seems like a natural counter, do we maybe see something like that pop up? Yeah, I think there's definitely like room for something like a Beedrill deck to come out. Um, like once again, like the your other matches. Arceus Beedrill kind of... potentially as well, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't think I don't even know if Arceus Beedrill actually trades fa- trades favorably into Lugia. That's what I was like thinking about when I thought about that deck. I don't know if you know if you trade favorably into Lugia. I guess if you go first, you do. But when you go second, I feel like you actually just lose the prize trade. Um, so I don't know if Arceus Beedrill is going to be the way to go. But like Beedrill Charizard, um, Beedrill in general, yeah, just really good. Good against Mew. Good against what's it called? Um, good against uh, Lugia, but if you're playing with an Intellion engine, that's where your lost box matchup starts to struggle. But like I said, if you can get the the edge on one of the other two big decks in lost box or Mew, because I think Tina was still reasonably popular at LAIC, but I don't expect that trend to continue because I think people understand how how bad that deck is going into a format where you have to tech so heavily for the Lugia matchup. Like I think your Lugia matchup is uh, maybe slightly advantaged with the builds with the heavier Sinnoh, heavier Roxanne. But then you're suffering against your Mew matchup and you're suffering into the Lost Box heavily with that kind of build. So something like that, Tina, can't really exist. But yeah, like the Beedrill deck, you're beating Mew, you're beating Lugia. That sounds like a good start. Um, as long as you can piece together a couple other matchups against some of the uh, less popular decks outside of the Lost Box. Take down the Lost Box sounds like a, a fine a fine, a fine, uh, a fine deck to consider. So is Arceus Duraludon just like big, big Hopium, like, you know, not the play ever? for anyone who's thinking about it um maybe you can you can say so. you would never play it i guess right but like, i would never play it i think it's been a terrible deck for a while and the fact that it like i mean i know it's lugia matchup is not that great uh yeah i just it's not good <laughs> it's not good yeah 
um, you talked about playing a couple Curums at LAIC, yep. which was a deck we didn't expect to see too much of. One did make top 32. Now is Curum something nope. that... Nope, nope, no, no shot. Nope. The deck is not good. <laughs> Answer's just going to be <laughs> no nope to whatever right we now. say. <laughs> there was a Blissey that got top 64 with the like three Evil Tall or something in the deck with Radiant Jirachi as well. So I could see something like that being okay. You're trying to try and do what Sander did. Um, I'd probably cut the Radiant Jirachi for the Radiant Gardevoir, though, and because <laughs> you don't want Lumidian to be KOing your Evitals. I'm sure they played uh, Cape of Toughness as well. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe that is that the adjustment for the Sander deck? You, you switch it up, you're like, well, if people attack for control, what if I'm an attacking control deck, right? You turn to Blissey plus Evital. I could see that actually being decent, to be honest. So um, I think that's interesting for sure. Definitely something worth looking at, because Blissey has like naturally had a good Lost Box matchup. Your Mew matchup probably is gonna suffer, though. That's like the one, the one area where you're probably gonna and run into some trouble. That's where Radiant Jirachi comes in. <laughs> Double heads, baby. Goodbye, Mew. No, I do yeah, think I guess, that like, the Blissey the guy. We talked. Wait, no, he didn't play a Drapion. I was, I wanted to think that maybe he played a Drapion <laughs> for a second, but I don't think you he could. Did. You could add one though. You could, yes. Yeah, and at that point, like if if the Uvitals do enough for the Lugia matchup, you don't even need to run uh, Path of the Peak, so you're not even like shutting off your own. What's it called? So yeah, because Path isn't that strong against Lost Box decks. It's like, okay, not that strong the against. Users are playing for uh, Lost Vacuum. Yeah, so yeah, I, I could see that or working out. Like you put Drake on in there. Stone. Yeah, I could see it working. Blissey could be the the secret to to winning the tournament. All right, Azul just leaked it. An hour and 56 <laughs> minutes into the podcast. <laughs> Get your blissies, people. This is definitely our longest episode ever. Any other like closing thoughts on the format real quick before we lock it out? Um, No, I think that's it. Yeah. I mean, we'll have to see if anyone else has a more creative ways. Like we, we yeah. So I guess like that's always the kind of the thing. Um, we've, we were LAIC happened, but that's just kind of one major region, right? As far as like the player base goes. Now we get to see, a tournament in each major region, you know, besides uh, Japan. Have they had, like, a major tournament in this format? I don't think so. I don't think they no have. No, yeah. yeah. Uh, just the City yes. League tournaments, right? Yeah. So besides Japan, every region is getting a major tournament this weekend to be like, okay, what can you come up with as far as answers to Lugia goes? And I'm very curious to see what people come up with. It seems pretty tough, especially with Stoutland. I feel like Stoutland is, like, the card that kind of is, like, you thought you had a shot, but now you don't. Because <laughs> like even stuff like Zoro Box and stuff, Stoutland makes that matchup so much harder to actually win. So yeah, um, yeah, I feel like Stoutland really kind of corners the uh, options for counters to Lukia for sure. But yeah, every region is gonna have a major tournament. Let's see what uh, people can come up with as far as uh, counters go. Definitely looking forward to seeing what happens this weekend. Definitely want to say thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks for all the support as always. If you do enjoy the podcast, please. Show your support by leaving a rating. It really does help us out a bunch. It takes just a second or so to do. Also, subscribe to us over on the YouTube channel. Maybe we could get to 4,000 subs on the YouTube channel before the end of the year. We're like 400-ish away. I don't know. Maybe. That should, could, be, could that should be pretty easy. Yeah, go ahead. We can do that. <laughs> Hit the sub button on the YouTube channel. Uh, leave us a like if you enjoyed the episode over there as well. Um, and if you want to support us on the other platforms, leave us a rating and review uh, wherever you're listening to us. And I think that's it. Catch you all next week. Uh, Tuesday, next time at uh, 7 a.m. We're a little bit late this week because uh, coming back from LAIC, but we'll catch you at the normal time next week. Peace.